Scuba Obsessed's weekly podcast. We talk about all things scuba diving from cool new gear, places to dive, and scuba news. Scuba Obsessed episode 203 is recorded live June 12, 2014. Welcome back to Scoob Obsessed. I'm Darren Jilson, and joining me this week, we have Mac the Dive Mentor. How are you doing today, Mac? I'm doing very well, and it's summer, and if you're not diving, you should be kicked in the bottom. Oh, I agree with you there, and I, the reason I can say that is because I actually got a dive in. <laughs> so my my dry spell is over, and uh, we'll hear that the later part of the show where we'll talk about the dives, and there have been many of them over the last few weeks. But before we do that, we will get right on into the news. <laughs> We probably should say something before we go too far. Jim isn't with us this week. He's still alive. He's still diving. He's just I'm probably taking a nap right about now. <laughs> something about old retired people. Yeah, those old retired guys. So we'll give him we'll give him hell, and then we'll we'll hopefully we'll see him next week when he when he's up to it, rested and recuperated. Yeah, that's 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 what we call it. So the first article up is this one's kind of a tragic one, and I thought it should we should bring it up just because of how important it is to be safe when you're out there diving. We had a diver that was struck by a boat, a, a juniper man down in uh, I think it was in Florida, Palm Beach. Palm, Palm Beach is Florida, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, Palm Beach, and uh, the, the diver died in a boat crash. Uh, he was snorkeling in the water uh, with another diver and. Uh, the other diver was treated for injuries, left the hospital, but the other one was killed. So uh, let's see, do they say in there what the, what the situation was? It, the, it doesn't really say, though, if they were snorkeling or diving. The first part, they said they were snorkeling, and then it comes over here. They were in a group of people who were boating the inlet, and they were the only ones in the water. So it's not clear to me if they were snorkeling or diving, actually. Yeah, it says that they were, uh, the Palm Beach County Fire Rescue crews were called to the Dubot Park just west of the inlet about 4.15 p.m. The man reported in his 20s was flown to St. Mary's Medical Center, but later died of his injuries. Uh, spokesperson Katie Johnson said the woman he was diving with also described in her 20s suffered less severe injuries was taken to the Juniper Medical Center. The names of those involved had not been released and more details on how the crash happened. Uh, and... Yeah, and they talk about some other incidents, but yeah, they don't—they don't tell you whether uh, they had a dive flag. And this is—it looks like at the, the bottom of the article. And we are getting caught up on show notes, by the way. So if you go and follow it, also if you follow our scoop it feed, which you can link to from the website, uh, you can get this article. We had this one actually posted today, uh, but they talk about the an article we had talked that we had referred to earlier in the year uh, about somebody I think in the same area being hit. Uh, the confusing item I have here is, we're talking about one, we don't know if he had a dive flag. Number two, there's an article in there that talks about a bill sits on the governor's desk to make sure these flags are easier to spot. Now, one, I don't know how a bill does that unless the bill says size differences. It doesn't say. Mm-hmm. Uh, currently, if you look it up, the, the dive site or dive flag size is 12 by 12 if you're on a float. You can use a buoy in many instances, one foot square, but a buoy floating on the water is hard to see. If you're on a boat, it's 20 inches by 24, at least three feet up off the boat, visible 360 degrees. 
Well, you know, a 12 by 12 flag on a float ain't easy to see. Not at so all. So I'm curious if their rules and regulations have changed or that's what's going to change. Well, hopefully we'll find out. But uh, just be careful out there. Make sure you're following the, f the flag. And those are minimum sizes. There's nothing keeping you from uh, flying one that's a larger flag or more visible. And then if you remember, we had the article in Hawaii about the uh, scuba diver who was assaulted. Uh, it has finally made it to the Hawaiian County Prosecuting Attorney. Their office received the report on, on the May 8th incidents in which one scuba diver allegedly ripped another diver's breathing apparatus out of her mouth. Mitch Ross said Monday at his office did receive the Department of Land and Natural Resources investigation attack. He said it was being forwarded to the Kona office after being processed through his office's intake procedures, and he has not seen it yet himself. A DLNR spokesperson did not respond to an email sinking and up uh, seek, sinking. We always think about sinking. Seeking an update on the investigation as a uh, from the press as of this time Monday, and they go on. They give a little bit more details, which we've already covered in previous shows. So it is making its rounds. Hopefully, we'll hear something soon. That sounds like that one's going to be a he said, she said. Even with the video, it's a little different than she said, he said. But I'm still surprised something hasn't been done physically, such as cited, given a citation as evidence that something is proceeding. Now, the fact it's taken this long, does it mean it's there's political motivations involved? I mean, is somebody trying to see which side of this argument is the, the correct one to be on? I would say unusual because the uh, police force had no jurisdiction under the water. According to what they they were saying, it happened out of their jurisdiction. Mm -hmm. So that's got to be part of it. It's like, uh, how often have you heard about this occurring? Well, you say that it's beyond their jurisdiction underwater. I mean, would that correspond for us if we're in the river? Well, I suppose what depends on what we're doing in the river. Hmm. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, that's where the casinos, with all the casinos floating at one point <laughs> in time. So, <laughs> yeah. It's one of those things you might want to check out before you try it. Oh, I pulled up the wrong article here. Oh, no, I didn't. I got it here. I was just getting ahead. Uh, and then if you remember, the they're now calling him a former firefighter. He's heading to trial for $30,000 in scuba gear theft. It's one we've covered a few weeks before. The former lower Southampton firefighter is headed to trial, accused of stealing $30 worth of scuba equipment from his volunteer fire company. In a brief court appearance this, thir this Thursday, Tuesday, Timothy Kenley, 26, of Lower Southampton, waived his rights to preliminary hearing before Lower Southampton District Judge John Waltman on seven counts of felony burglary charges and 20 counts each of the theft and receive receiving of stolen property. I'm curious how they came up with the difference in numbers. Seven felony, 20 counts each of receiving and getting rid of stolen property. Why the difference? I don't know. Are they different? Are the felony counts specific to different items? I would just wonder, maybe, did he steal on seven different occasions? And then oh. 20 counts of trying to pawn off the gear? I could be, I guess. Uh, sounds pretty freaking serious. Yeah, he's not going to, what's it tell you, to steal everything all at once instead of little tiny batches? Well, then you only got one charge of each. Yeah. Now, go figure that. Yeah. Well, I mean, at least this way you can plea bargain. Well, right. What, the, what they're doing there is they're rightfully so charging with everything they can get so that when his attorney goes and works a deal, they're like, oh, we'll knock half of those off. And then we have Walmart and Costco saying they're taking a stand against forced labor. The retail giant Walmart and warehouse membership uh, club leader Costco said they're taking an action response to a news investigation that found evidence of forced labor in Thailand area seafood supply chains. Workers compelled for 
compelled to toll for years in Asia at no pay and under threat of violence are being used in production of seafood sold by the, the retailers. One major European-based multinational and retailers were also selling seafood linked to the forced labor, according to a report. Forced labor enslaves large number of men who toll in the water off Thailand aboard fishing boats that are vital to production of shrimp sold to major food retailers throughout the world. One of the world's largest shrimp farmers, a Thailand-based Shenron Pokhan, Pokfan Foods, buys fish meal used to feed farmed shrimp from some of the suppliers that own and operate and buy from fishing boats manned with slaves. Uh, this is according to The Guardian that launched a six-month investigation onto the issue. Men who escaped from the boat that supplied the CP Foods and other similar companies described 20-hour work shifts, regular beatings, tortures, even murder, the newspaper reported. Huh. <clears throat> I don't know what you say about that. I mean, it, well, it's, it said one Thailand's the world's top global global exporter of the uh -huh. shrimp. First item is I'm always curious why they picked on Costco and Walmart. Obvious. Where's the big hurrah of underpaid laborers? Right. They want pay increase. They're picking on these guys. If you look at everybody who gets that gets their shrimp from this, it's not those two biggies. It's those and a lot more. Yeah. How come you didn't pick on the other people? Yeah. Well, th these are, and, I, and this is not the original article. This is a follow-up where those two are saying they're reacting to it because they have the most to lose out of this. If you're perceived as supporting slave labor, that's not great for marketing. So they're taking a position on it. But what this is, is this is the whole seafood supply chain that is running through Thailand. And they said Thailand is the largest exporter of shrimp. But guess who's the largest importer? That's the United States. So those shrimp you buy, no matter what the source, it's a good chance it's coming from here. I mean, yeah. unless so, it's specifically Gulf shrimp or another shrimp uh, on, the, on those areas, it's, it, it's going to come with enough time from Thailand. And then also, it's not necessarily the companies that these organizations are working directly with. You know, they're buying it through several middlemen organizations. And in this case, it looks like some of it was a farm where the farm itself was paying labor, but the raw materials they were using to feed the shrimp were coming from stocks that were fished with slave labor involved. So, you know, it's a tangled mess and they're taking this position and they're setting up an organization, which means that there's going to be a, it's going to be a nonprofit, which will get grants and money and donations. And, you know, who knows if they'll be able to do any good. The, well, the problem is, some, is simple. If everybody's concerned on slave labor, stop eating the damn shrimp. No, you do that. Don't eat shrimp, people. Mm -hmm. Then you don't have to worry about Walmart and the other one. Just don't buy the shrimp. Don't eat it. Well, Case soft. Well, what's that saying about Thailand, where they've got a society where they're they they're allowing slave labor to be going on? That's another issue. It's like if it's for shrimp, what else is it for that we just don't know about today? Oh, it could be anywhere. I mean, there were years where they were saying that diamonds were mined by slaves in South Africa. Blood diamonds. Yeah, and then you say, what is the definition of slave labor? I mean, you could take a look and say that even in our economy, you know, the I, I heard a definition this last week where if you can't earn enough to live and to eat, or that's all you can earn up to, you're no better than a slave. But can you improve yourself to get a higher paying job? Is it my job to support you because you can't make more? No. Now, you I can be benevolent if you yeah. want. Any extra money, ship it to somebody. <laughs> Better yet, ship it to me. So I'll, you, you've I'll heard it. Yeah, you, you, you can run it through my account. And I'll make sure that Mac will get some of it. <laughs> <laughs> we can bypass this middleman, send it directly to me, and then you have to worry about I, it. I, I'm adding value. It's, you know, the anti-fraud. I'm... I guarantee that there are no slave labor involved other than my children. 
as I like to remind them every once in a while, I'm only required to give them water and occasional bread. And I don't guarantee that it's not moldy. Well, what is it they say? Raising kids for fun and profit? <laughs> well, let's go back. The old farm days here. Yeah. They had 10, 12 kids. Why? <laughs> kids died because of diseases and you needed to run the farm. You know? Yeah. Is that slave labor? Well, yeah, it probably was. <laughs> Fish fossils show evolutionary beginning of the jaw. An ancient fish dubbed uh, metaspringing. Is that what that is? Sprig. Metaspring. I'll let you do all the enunciation because I screw it up. Metaspringina? Metaspringina? Who knows? An ugly looking, sluggy looking, eel looking fish. Yeah. Or something. Looks kind of like, yeah, I don't know. Almost looks a little bit like lychee. So what it does, it shows arches near the front of its body that may have been the beginning stages of jaws. And the key word is may. Yeah. I mean, it's only 540 million years ago. (laughs) Maybe they're right. Probably they're not. The fossils were discovered in the Burgess Shale site in Canada. Fossils at the site tie into the Cambrian explosion, which is a period of rapid evolution that started about 540 million years ago. Before this finding, there were only two metaspringy things. Fossils were known to scientists, and they were also not as well preserved. The details of the fossils are stunning. This is according to lead author Professor Simon Conway Morris of the Cambridge Department of Earth Science in a news release. Even the eyes are beautifully preserved and clearly evident. Prevertebrate fossils are difficult to find because they're composed mostly soft tissue, which is rarely preserved. The well-preserved specimen can help researchers identify details such as how the fish swam. What's that saying? Beauty in the eye of the beholder? <laughs> yeah. I don't think eyes. it's very pretty at all. It's pretty freaking ugly. Yeah, so what they're doing is they say, once the jaws have developed, the world's oceans opened up. Having a hypothetical model swim in the fossil records is incredibly gratifying. Obviously, fish jaws, obviously jawed fish came later, but this is the starting point. Everything is there and ready to go. I don't know. Is is that really where you draw the the line? Is it just because it's a, because they're they're saying shape equals. I look at how many 8 billion people on the planet, how many people have any inkling of what he's talking about and how has that affected how you make your living today oh the, not at all yeah not at all to me it's just plain interesting boy i almost sound like a bah humbug no we don't we don't say that not Curmungeon? at all <laughs> <Curmungeon. laughs> no diving beetle could one day help scuba divers male diving beetles have adhesive plungers on their forelegs that allow them to hold on to female mating partners this according to a recent study of the journal of royal society interface reports and the effectiveness of those plungers could point ways for the design of human underwater equipment the team of researchers from taiwan taiwan saw that female underwater beetles uh, squirm to avoid copulation and undesirable suitors triggering a need for the adaptation of male legs See, we're missing Jim here. He would have all sorts of comments at this point. I, I, I set this one up just for him. A team of scientists uh, led by Dr. Kai Jung Chai of the National Chung Shing University compared the gripping features of the two specimens of male aquatic beetles, one that has a spatula-shaped bristles and one more evolved diving beetle that had suction cup-shaped pads. Researchers found that the primitive beetles released a glue-like secretion, but the beetles with the circular plungers on their legs were able to withstand seven times more force than the others, proving that the suction cups posed a sexual advantage. Scientists hope that the success of the male aquatic beetles' adhesive legs will help inspire innovations in aquatic equipment such as attachments for underwater rescuers or scuba divers. So beetles having sex is great for diving. Beetles do it deeper? Yeah. It's it's the whole line of t-shirts that can come out of this. 
And we have bottom feeding fish helping fight the global warming. And essentially, this is a large study that was put out. Let's see who, who put this one out. Researchers from the Marine Institute and University of Southampton. And they found that fish that feed in the middle layers of the ocean consume carbon, which is then captured as it sinks down to the bottom and becomes part of the deeper water ecosystem. And my answer to this is, yeah, <laughs> so... You, that's that's what you would think. So it's kind of like pointing out the obvious, but uh, good for them. Does it, does it really say what, what the whole deal is? No, they're just trying to say that uh, things eating other things and digesting is reduces global warming. Oh, it just said it reveals a vital carbon sink that could help us in a small but significant way to combat adding to global warming. I don't see how it does that. Yeah, the researchers investigated this by collecting muscle tissue from samples of fish caught in fish trawls off the west coast of Ireland in varying degrees between 500 and 1,800 meters to look at how much carbon was present in each stage. They searched muscle samples and looked for carbon-nitrogen isotopes. By doing this, researchers were able to see how carbon transfers through the ecosystem and thereby determine diet and predator-prey dynamics for that area. I wonder what percentage of our issue, if you rectified this potential issue, what percentage does this make into the global warming aspect of preventing it? Often. Not, not in my opinion. And what that, what that brings up is at the end of the program, you know, we're going to have a clip, and it's quite a long clip, but it's an interesting clip. Some of you are going to think that we're poo-pooing uh, different things, and we may be, but uh, listen to it. It's a clip from John Coleman, where if you remember in the 70s, he was a weatherman for Good Morning America. He's also the founder of the Weather Channel, and he is going to tell you, if you listen to the whole thing, he'll tell you where the theory of global warming came from, uh, who were the students of global warming and what the motivation is for global warming. So even if you don't, even if you believe global warming is hundred percent true and it's all man-made and we got to do stuff now to prevent it, you will want to listen to that at the end because that will give you an idea of what the other side is, is getting. Uh, and I'd be interested to hear if you still think one way or the other. And then here we have somebody, an underwater affair with, oh goodness, there's another name. If I didn't pick up these articles myself, I would say somebody was setting me up. This is Tigo Ostrinik. I just call him by his first name. Hey, T O. Hey, you. Teg. Uh, he's an Indonesian artist vagabond and has finally brought his life to underwater fashion. Uh, brought his. Oh, Godness. He, he likes to make art. <laughs> he is fascinated with it. Yeah, exactly. So, what he's doing is he's taking and making these metal structures. And if you look at them, uh, imagine rebar uh, with bolts, threaded rods, and bolts at the end. And then he has this kind of irregular shaped pattern which kind of has a like a coral sponge look to it and what they're doing is they're putting uh, electrical charges to this to do rapid growing of coral so the They've got 16 modules of 6 millimeter thick iron plates measuring 130 by 140 centimeters, uh, weighing 200 kilograms. Each is set into a 2 meter high iron pole. Uh, he says, I have made these poles and thick plates in a way of fortifi fortification against strong currents and allow fish to play around and hide from predators. The poles are linked to each other to ensure that they stand firm even against strong currents. And what these will do is the current that, and current not in the water, but current is in electricity, are going to be applied to these poles and will increase the growth rate of coral. So these will actually end up becoming coral reefs. He doesn't say how far offshore that is, does he? And what voltage and how he gets the voltage to it? No, there, there's a company that's been doing this. Uh, they, they actually go charge uh, for the service. And I think we covered that probably a couple of years back. But I don't think it's a, just a casual charge. I think there's a quite a bit of current that's put into those. 
So that what the that coral is called biorock. It's an artificial reef system that's been applied in other places. I was for, uh, fortunate to get to know um, somebody who was passionate about it. A local non-governmental organization with active involvement protecting coral reefs turned them on to it. Always curious how much that costs to do something like that. I mean, it, it obviously does something, and you can make structures and enhance the environment. But again, it, I'm just curious at the cost. Well, that be. right there, I mean, it, it, there's got to be a lot of cost into it. And then you couldn't do this on your own. Yeah, and it looks like he's diving off. Is that a barge or a pier or a dock? I'm going to say it that's a like dock. looks shallow, shallows, which would facilitate it. Yeah. Uh, well, this is a different article I pulled up. This is an article on scuba boosting tourism. Uh, like Havasu, a desert diving experience has been showcased in the June issue of Scuba Diving Magazine. Doug Traub, president and CEO of Convention and Visitors Bureau, is certain that this particular article will increase the number of scuba diving visitors. Traub, who's an avid diver himself, said that it's been pitching the article Scuba Diver for a couple of years now. Our job is to diversify the economy, and scuba diving is a natural amenity that hasn't been explored. It's one of those sexy things about the lake that people didn't know about. There's a lot of unexplored areas in a lake for divers to explore. Okay, now I'm going to say, what lake is this again, and where at? It is Lake Havasu. And it must be near Lake Havasu City. <laughs> it's near the lower Colorado River. So we're getting to the west part of the United States. So uh, he's making an article on diving that's going to increase it. Well, actually, he didn't. What he's doing is it, what this is like a press release from a politician whose job is it to increase tourism. So what they do is they go and they like you, you thought that Diving Magazine on their own came up with all those great locations. No, the locations themselves are pitching these to those magazines and then they go huh you know we can't you know because it's the obvious the best place for diving does it really change i mean if you could quantify all the conditions say the conditions didn't change does that ever then not be the best so say the conditions say that fiji or bonaire or something is the best and really no every year it would be the same article so what they have to do is come up with different locations for the top 10 which number two or one happens to be Michigan, but... Oh, Papa Lake. Papa Lake. <laughs> I think you have a hard time even pitching that to the muddies. <laughs> I, I don't understand. You're <laughs> underwater. What's, what's not to love? <laughs> so that's what this is. Is this? They're, they're just talking about it. Uh, and it, it sounds like maybe a location is not particularly thought of for scuba diving. It's always good to promote. And if you can get it into a dive magazine, all that much better. The, they said the Lake Havasau has uh, 900 acres of fish habitat and 30 dive sites that make it a premier diving area in the desert southwest. We like to consider Lake Havasau the Caribbean of the southwest. What, what were you pointing at? Sunfish have been growing large because of the invasive quagga mussel they feed on. Oh, really? Yeah, this is one of the first times you've known them say quaggas as opposed to zebra. Uh -huh. And the first time they've identified a specific fish that happens to like to eat them. We need some of those out here. Oh, don't even... Well, just we need another invasive species. There it eats quagga mussels. Here it's going to eat everything else. Divers. So it's a sunfish. I've heard that before. Uh, we got sunfish. I used to fish for them as a kid in the river. I have a nice video I took yesterday that I think we have piranha in pawpaw. Now, it's disguised itself as a really pretty sunfish bigger <laughs> than my hand, but he viciously attacked me multiple times. You got a video? Yes, I do. Oh, good. So yeah, now, now we have a promise of a video. And, and we know the outcome, you know, it, Max survived. Right. It has nothing to do with a can of squeezy cheese that you're squirting <laughs> at him. It sounds like taunting to me. <laughs> well, no. Was, was it, so I take it you, you weren't getting the squeezy cheese out of the can fast enough. 
All I know is he, he attacked my fingers vigorously and repeatedly. Now, I do not do that with muskies because they have real big teeth. <laughs> There's plenty of fish you don't want to do that with. And then we have an article. It's not quite scuba, but I thought it was interesting. They're talking about placing transformers underwater. This one is 3,000 meters underwater, this transformer. And if you remember, we had that electrical grid we were talking about uh, where they were doing studies, and had, we wondered how they got the electricity down there and how they step it up. For those of you who don't know, when you see those power, power lines, at least in the U.S., going overhead, the farther you want power to go, the higher you step up the voltage. Some of the power lines we have in here are up to a million volts. Yeah, uh, the one from the Cook country. Nuclear Plant is 475,000 volts and then 7,650, 765 kV. Yeah, a lot of voltage. You don't want to be, I mean, how, how far is a spark? Like, I mean, I remember when I took electrical, they said uh, it was like a million volts was like an inch. But I'm sure I don't want to test how far uh, those lines would, would arc. You can go into the switchyard on a muggy day and the hairs on your arm will stand up <laughs> and you will not use an umbrella out there. <laughs> and they do make a nice little sound oh, yeah, when, you're, yeah. when you're there. So here they're talking about putting transformers underwater. And the one thing that they've done is they've made the transformer. It's a fluid-filled transformer. So a lot of your transformers you see in poles, a lot of those have uh, liquids in them. And at one point in time, they were toxic chemicals. which PCBs. PCBs. And they have been changed out. But uh, it's probably a form of mineral oil now that's being used. And in these underwater transformers, they, they fill them on the surface with a non-compressible liquid. And then they go down and they have a way for them to equalize pressure so that they don't just like compress in like a can. But uh, where these come into effect is a lot of your subsea transformers. Uh, in fact, I think there's even been talk at some point for some of these, uh, you know, Hawaii is too far to get power from California. But, you know, there are situations where you want that to go. And you see it up in Scandinavia. And that's where uh, the, this article is showing some of these tests being performed. So interesting. So you can have transformers down the bottom. Hopefully they got them marked so you have some grubbing diver down there doesn't. I even I don't them. think I'm going to be grubbing at nine thousand meters. Yeah, you're not going to. You're not in your new suit down there popping around and with an ice pick. Yeah. What is this interesting looking round object? Yeah. <laughs> Here, let me let me smack into it a few times. And you look at it, uh, the, I mean, from a transformer because I can remember when you in the summer when transformers burn up, it's that they're not able to dissipate the heat. You think about what's perfect being underwater. I mean, even anywhere, you, you can, it's probably less expensive. You, you could actually have some better efficiency if you had you dropped your transformers in the rivers and things for... I was just curious how they change them out when you do have a fault. Yeah. Well, that, they said that's one of the things with their testing. Is that they're trying to make it to where you just can't go down there and, and fix them up. So they're designing them to uh, last longer. Because, I mean, what are you going to do? You'd have to, what, grapple them and pull them back out? Yeah, can you imagine trying to find that needle in the haystack again, even with a GPS? Could you let it down, you know, your grappling hook or whatever, mm -hmm. got ocean currents moving it around? Yeah. You definitely well, you, have to have eyes on it, you yeah. know, camera or something. Well, you look at Fisher Scientific Equipment, you know, where they do the side scans and the magnetometers. They've got equipment specifically designed for detecting uh, electrical cables. Right, put a pinger on it. Yeah. Oh, yeah, you got that too. I mean, that's a, that'd be the way to do it. You put a pinger on there and you well, just have it zero in on a pinger. What we were going to do on a couple of the wrecks out there is you put a submerged buoy mm -hmm. and then you get near it, you hit the button and it releases the buoy to come up for you to anchor it. Do your dive, back off, hit the button, it retracts it back down. Oh, it takes it back down. Oh, I thought yeah. you had to do that down below. No. Oh. 
That's kind of sneaky. Yeah. You know, and maybe that's what we need to do. What you do is, uh, you know, this is a, the idea for Jim when we talk about the preserve, is that uh, every, you know, like uh, the boat launches where you well, buy now, a key and you get the key. we can charge you to get to, on the wreck. Here's the key today and we change it. Yeah. 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 It could be, you know, five bucks for a day. We could have, we can app an app yeah, do you want on a the grapple, smartphone. Do you want to grapple 200 feet or do you want the buoy right there in front of you? Yeah, we could have, we could have different buoys depending on how far swim do you want. <laughs> Yeah, I like that idea. So we just came up with another idea. Uh, and then also uh, last week we talked about the Solar Roadways project, or last week, two weeks ago. Uh, and that's uh, now 200% funded. And there's probably six, seven days yet to go. So $2 million they've raised so far. Oh, did we did we skip uh, Fabian Cousteau? Yep. Yeah. We talked about him last week, so we might want to do a follow-up. Yeah, Fabian Cousteau, who, who was going underwater in, uh, what, what's that chamber do you got there? At Florida Keys, remember, the indoor laboratory? Yep. Let's see. Where did I got that link? Well, I'm not seeing it. I sent you the link, so I must have it. But he gave a talk underwater. Um, why am I, I'm just not, oh, here it is. It's the one article before Ted. I got, I got so confused with Ted there. And I actually listened to this live broadcast. This was last Sunday. Uh, they had it live, and, they, and there's a recording, so if you go to the website, which we'll have in the show notes, it was www.conservation.org, and it was uh, Ocean Chat, and you had uh, Fabian Cousteau, you had scientist Greg Stone, and author Ian uh, Solmonhander, Hallander, Solmonhander. And what they did is earlier today, they dove down to the Aquarius to visit with Cousteau, and they went back up and they did a, it was a Google Hangout. Uh, and actually, if, if nothing else, if you guys can take a look at this and let us know if this is something you're interested in us doing. I don't know if that really video was that compelling. But I listened to it. Maybe for students, this was interesting. But, yeah, I didn't get a whole lot out of it. Uh, but, you know, listen to yourself. It's uh, the whole uh, talk they had was about 33 minutes. Uh, a little, a few technical glitches. Uh, you know, definitely wasn't scripted. You can say that much for him. You mean like ours? Yeah, oh, ours is tightly scripted. <laughs> every pause, every mispronunciation, you know, because I, I pronounce them all correct at first, and then Mac just says, "Don't do that. That's it. Don't sound right." I just I used the word, and this guy, and this guy, guy number one, guy number two, in this part of the country somewhere in Asia. Yeah, yeah it sounds like a conversation you say the kids with my grandmother. She'd be then who's he, what's it, went over, and then you know him, and he never got anywhere. Yeah. And who's on first? Well, then when she was, yeah, probably everybody had this, but uh, when she was calling somebody into family, she went through every male's name until she got to yours. And photos of the week. We have some good uh, photo links. One of them, there's a three-year study going on where they, and maybe it was just who they are talking to, but they're pitching it as being great for photography. The I'm not into a lot of the macro, but you've got to appreciate the time and effort it took to get those pictures. And they are freaking awesome. Oh, the coloration. Well, the, the, I don't believe any color anymore after seeing what you could do with Photoshop. Well, I'm just hoping that they're not lying to me and that they're really not like green or orange and they make it purple. Uh, but yeah, you're right. And, and the other reason why I think macro is so popular is because visibility isn't such an issue when you're doing macro shots. You can, you can get awesome macro shots in water with four foot visibility. Not meaning that I could do it. Well, the other item I, I noticed on all of those shots... Whenever you're going to do an, your horror movie or invasion from outer space, uh -huh. your your characters are right well, there. Well, they the ocean. do that. Just I move mean, move the eyes around someplace. Uh, give them a mouth so they can talk. And well, they set. already have a mouth, but yeah. in this case, yeah, it's spooky looking. Would you want that in your hand? No, no. I mean, even, even look at that one right there. They've got a. Uh, well, that's X-rated there, though. Oh yeah, we can't talk about that one. You have to put your hands over your kids' ears. 
or eyes. Yeah, the team has a long list of expenses adding up to about uh, $1.5 million, but they currently only have collected 20000 of that. The core funding level looks to be 200000 since that level and beyond you will buy high-quality photo book with shots. So they must be doing some fundraising. So let's go over to their Indigo page and see where they are. So what they're trying to do is they're trying to raise money. Their goal is 75000 for this. There's seven days left. They're 22000 to it. The uh, Quat Quatitalis? Yeah, Quatalis. Quatalis. Quatalis Expedition. So $5 gets you a high-res photo. $10 gets you acknowledgments. 25 a signed postcard from the team. 50 your photo on our yacht. Okay, how do they do that? Is that superimposed, or do you get a trip down there to do that? We'd love to take you all to see the sea, but the yacht is pretty small. We can offer you the next best thing, which is to send us a photo. It can be your face and face of your dog, and we'll make a collage of all you beautiful people and stick it on our yacht's board. Uh-huh. And they've got five. They got six of 5,000 claimed. What about the yacht ownership? Now, that uh, what's that involved there? This is a $50 certificate of yacht ownership. They'll send you a paper co-ownership certificate for the yacht. Every rope, screw, and sail you'll be signed by our captain himself and delivered to you from sunny Turkey. You can hang it on your wall. Your parents will be so proud. <laughs> and then you can post yourself on Facebook as owning a yacht? Yeah, I own that yacht. Once you then, picture my yacht. And you could pass a lie detector test because you have the documentation. You could chat that right. Now, I wonder if I can, since I own a yacht, I can now get my captain's license uh of course, there would be a little falsification of actual time served on the vessel. Uh, $60 gets you a thermal cup, so you can either own a yacht or for $10 more you get a cup. Or a t-shirt. T-shirt's also $60. 75 is a goodie bundle. Uh, you get 30 high-res photos, signed certificate of yacht co-ownership, a postcard from the exotic location, also a spectacular Jelta, Jelta, what is Jelta? Themed calendar. Is that what those things swim in our Jelta? I don't know, but I know that we're entering such wow territory here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> then they have another t-shirt for 100 They have a thermal cup for 100 With that nude on that t-shirt would be pretty good, though. So yeah. we, we just go a, by that Just one. a photo book, a uh, super t-shirt. You know, and, and I'm fine for these guys doing it, but I think we need to do the same thing for us diving. I mean, because really, what are you doing? Are these, these guys are going to go either way. Okay, so what we'll do then is we'll set it up on Papa on a dock. You and me, there's a space in between. They send their photo. We put them between us with our arms around there. Yeah. You know, Diver of the Year, Mud Club. Yeah, we could do that. We could do photo. Uh, we could, uh, I'm sure Jim would be willing to give them a certificate of ownership for, you know, 0.0001 of the Get Wet. It has possibilities. Yeah. Let us know, people out there, if what do you think about that. this? Is, is this something you'd fork over a buck or something yeah. like that? Now, now, let's go all the way to the last item. So say you're like, you know, you guys are having too much fun out there. I want to go too. For $30,000, you can join them on board and become a full-fledged member of the team. Paying member. Paying member, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you uh, that's for two weeks. You'll learn how to operate our robot, make incredible underwater photos, and how to sail a yacht. Is that slave labor? How to sail a <laughs> you, well, you, How can it be slave? You had to pay for you it. You paid for it, but you're not getting paid back. So if you work like a dog, just don't get pay them to do it, and then don't get paid, must be the enjoyment of being able to do this. Yeah. But 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 if you I, own I, the boat, then you I, would well, actually. I, I'm looking at this and that, and it's like eh, we're pretty close to getting one of those. Yeah, thirty thousand. You, I bet I could find the, their version of a yacht. And it's hard to tell scale, but I'm going to bet that's well, a... That's a guy, so... Let's say that's going to probably be about a 50-foot... Oh, so is it here right here? It says this is a 70-foot sturdy water stallion custom-built for lengthy expeditions. It's a sailboat. 
It's got a nice general and a mainsail. The cabin is, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a fit for crossing oceans, rounding capes, <laughs> navigating open water and waters, and supporting a lively team. Woohoo! Yeah. We're lively. Is it, is it like open bar? Oh my goodness, look at the route. That, now, you're only getting two weeks for $30,000, but that if they're going to go every place where they say they are. Well, okay. You know what this makes me think of is Jim's son. Yeah. He is on that mega yacht as second mate, and he has just left from Florida up the Atlantic coast, now is proceeding through the St. Lawrence Seaway to Chicago, where they're going to then cruise around for a couple of weeks, out, back down the St. Lawrence, out to the Med. Now, how great would that be? To be young and oh, doing that. man. <laughs> and, and take a look here. Oh, I bet he's going to go right through here, to straight to Gibraltar, come up through here. I mean, which arm would you give? Firstborn yeah. child? I've got one available. Just started driver's ed Monday. Yeah, get them now, break them in early, chauffeur. Yeah. Oh, this is wow. the male or female? This is my daughter. Okay, yeah. forget the pool boy. Yeah. Wait a minute, what's this? And I go back up. Yeah, because you Science that it confirmed says... we're not actually crazy all right I, i'm interested in that some one. true science giants have our backs our project is sponsored by leading marine biologists and jelta experts all over the world here are some of them william hammer professor emeritus at university of california andre Madoradini, associate professor university of sao paulo brazil mikhail motz associate professor university of texas casey dunn assistant professor phd brown university stephen haddock scientist phd monterey bay aquarium research institute and anton uh, we'll call him chick uh saint phd or scientist phd institute marine biology ras russia so they're not crazy i've got the certs to prove it well they supported it i wonder how much they had to pay that yeah, well, I'm thinking support. I mean, how how stuff is that? You, know, I think you should be able to go in a boat and yeah. But uh, yeah, take a look at it. See if it's something you want to give to. I, I yeah. Wow, look at that that budget there. Well, they're charging you for yacht repairs. So this is not, this must be an ongoing thing then. Four hundred and seventy-four thousand dollars. You could buy a freaking new one. Well, let's see what it, it's a three-year underwater journey through so, the unknown now. Through the unknown. How okay. much? Is, let's go back to the where they're going to go. Okay. This is worth a look anyway. Sort of interesting. Looking, they're going everywhere I'd like to go. Go to Gibraltar and just hit about everything there. Wherever there's water, you're going pretty much. Yeah, it's uh, we could stop over in Algiers. I mean, it this is just like a dream cruise. Oh, yeah, warm water too, the whole thing. Three years, and then they wind up in down south of uh, Emerter. Well, but that's just that's just for there. I mean, that's not showing the rest of the world, right? Yeah, well, this starving. is up here the first one, and then they start this one. Yeah, they're going to No, no, no. They start here. No, there's a start that's right finish. here. That's finish? That's finish. So right, start so starting here. in Turkey and going backwards. Yeah, they're going backwards. Well, I guess it's for forwards, wherever you, your perspective is. And they go Down across the coast of the Africa, Atlantic. right? Yeah. Come across over in South America and up through the islands. Yeah, uh, up the East Coast. Then they go back down, touch Cuba, go through the Gulf, all the way around South America. Yeah, I bet down here, down by the Cape, that's going to be nice and rough. Yeah, there's Hopefully. some of these things you want to really pick your timing. Now, what did this, they got like a little marker. I wonder what the marker means. Is that going to be that they're going to stop there for an extended amount of time? Yeah, I'm just curious about the marker in the middle of the ocean. <laughs> yeah. Well, is that there's, an island, maybe? I don't know. Let's see, what it's is It's obscuring what is... whatever it is. If you yeah. click on it, does it do something? No, it doesn't do anything. So Bottom expedition line is, that is would built be into 10 stages and includes long passages. So that must be the 10 the stages. So that's 1, 2, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. Yeah. So each of those is probably the start of a stage. Yeah, last two to five months each stage. Yeah, to be young and with $30,000. <laughs> 
So they're stopping by a port near us. Did they get? They're gonna get in the Great Lakes? No. Nope. Nope. They're staying out. Everybody. Nobody likes fresh water. Yeah, you're just gonna. They just bring in uh, invasive species anyway. The full cost of the three-year expedition will be four million dollars. Includes preparation, set off, maintenance over the whole expedition period. You know, if they had gold, it'd be a lot less suitcases. Yeah. Well, you got to give the Somali something when you get over there. Get Confederate money. Do they yeah. know the difference? Yeah, I bet you they would. So yacht repairs, 437000 Upgrades and customization, 390000 Dive equipment, 99000 What could we? What kind of dive equipment are they getting? Well, the compressor is thirty grand. Yeah, the diver's wearable equipment's forty-two. Are they doing all rebreathers? How many divers are there? Onboard support equipment, compressors, mobile recomp. They're having a. I guess that's cool. I mean, I, if I'm going to be out, I wouldn't mind a recompression chamber. Uh where they're at, I'd like to have one aboard. Yeah, eighteen thousand. I wonder. Now, I've always wondered because I remember you remember the old Jacques Cousteau one he had, and it looked a little bit like a torpedo where they put a window in it and they shoved you inside. What happens if there's two of you? <laughs> then you get two 50-gallon drums, weld them together, and at least go down to about 30 feet if you're lucky. Well, actually, you can do that. And 30 feet is a hell of a lot better than not. Yeah. Well, I, what I'm thinking is I'm, I'm hoping that this chamber covers everybody who's diving. I bet you a Nicholas a monolong for that much money. 18. Mobile. And I've also seen the ones that are packaged. Mm-hmm. And it, part of it's hard and part of it's soft. Yeah, yeah that makes sense. Uh, photo and video equipment, 216000 I think that might even be a little light there. You know, is pricing that stuff out, that's usually where you spend a lot of money. Yeah, 146000 for video. Yeah. So they need to be doing, I, I appreciate what they're doing, but Jacques Cousteau did the same thing. Well, he had the Calypso. He had a little more governmental support. Mm-hmm. And he had a lot of people because he had a lot of good PR. Yeah. Plus, he made the equipment. I mean, he was ma- he had a companies that were giving him that he owned that was generating money for doing that. Yeah, I paid my dues for a number of years, but never went aboard. He never invited you. Good Mac, come on. We got some grubbing to do. <laughs> Those have been grubbing inland. He's probably called on me. Cousteau did do Bonterra Mine, though. Yeah. I got video of that. Yeah, I remember he did Bonterra. He also did a little stint there in the Great Lake. Yep. And then we have some more photos. These from the National Geographic, which always has some great photos. Uh, and this was in celebration of World's Ocean Day. Do you see that one? 1927. That was the first underwater color photograph public. All my photos are green. I don't know what that means. <laughs> you just didn't have Photoshop, right? <laughs> Wow, 27, 1927. I didn't realize they had, I'm trying to think back, when, when the color photo started, it had to be pretty close. And you're considering National Geographic, they'd have been the first ones to do it. So that the World Ocean Day was Sunday, which is a holiday designated by the United Nations to celebrate the extraordinary diversity of life beneath the waves. Uh, and digital cameras were the biggest boom to photography and the biggest bane, of course, to film. Yeah, well, and let's let's go ahead and do that as a segue to our next section. We're talking about some potentially cool scuba gear. And one that we've mentioned over and over and over again is the GoPro dive cameras. And GoPro is scheduled to have an IPO. And they said that what they're looking for, if it's successful, that would value the company at $3 billion. The asking price would be between $21 to $24 per share, which would raise $427 million, which would then, as you multiply out by the astounding shares and et cetera, and ownership, is about $3 billion. 
The wearable camera company has seen great success among consumers who have embraced its clip-on cameras, record everything from trips down zip lines to underwater photos. The device originally conceived by Nick Woodman has been used by servers, surfers. I, I liked how they got the, and some truly epic cat videos. Got to give those cat people the Yeah, the cat videos in there. The thing is, at this price, people are just, they just buy them. They're convenient size. They got a package. You can... I am so glad I bought mine. It wasn't the low end. It's not the high end. It's in the middle. And I don't do Wi-Fi because mm -hmm. I'm old. I'm not techie. <laughs> and you can't beat that little camera. And that's why it's green because there ain't no light and I don't have a strobe. And they're not a sponsor, but they should be, as we've said. Actually, I can't say I don't have a strobe. Uh-oh. He's breaking out a yellow bag. He said the yellow is his color, so... Yep. Down my back sometime, but hey, what can I say? Yep, he has a strobe. What? What is... Wow, what's that strobe? Where'd that come from? That actually looks fairly new. I was expecting an antique, you know, like you you put the uh, and you the chemicals crank, together. You get the crank and you oh, have yeah, to that, wind like the a, film. Was it carbide where you had the liquid and you dropped the... Yeah, but you got it. You got to supply oxygen to the strobe to let the carbide burn. It's, it's really complicated. <laughs> now, this one actually looks like it's uh, fairly new. Is that LED light? No, not okay. an LED one. Yeah. Nice handle on it. Yep. Well, I got it basically for my GoPro. Yeah. I've been right now, I've been holding a freaking clip. This way I can mount it, and yeah. I'm hoping the strobe works, even though I do have the underwater housing and uh, the camera. We, we should have Mac take a photo of his of his photo equipment so you could <laughs> see it. And the nice thing about it is you've got a handle, and that really helps you get uh, better pictures when you got that stability to hold on to something. Because I've used gyms uh, uh, where you mount it on the back of your hand, and even though I try not to my hands around them much, you just do. And then when I'm, you know, I'm grubbing, what would that be like? And mounting it on your helmet, uh, it's amazing. You really got to go slow. Yeah. Well, all your movement, slow. And then when you dangle the damn thing, it's spinning and getting all these weird shots while you're doing something else. Yeah. The, the uh, I don't mind on the, the helmet, but to me, that's not the primary camera you're, you're shooting with. But that's, that's a whole other discussion. All right. And now we've got uh, the Jesuit High Underwater Robotics Team, which this was out of Sacramento. It's in California <laughs> for, for us in the Midwest. And they are going to invade Michigan for the 13th Annual Marine Advanced Technology Competition, which is going to be held at Thunder Bay National Marine Sanctuary. Uh, we could get them to come down here and practice, you know, before yeah, they go up there. They could. It's uh, the 20-person team. They won a competition last summer when it was held in Tacoma, Washington. As defending champions, the team will face 34 teams from 11 countries, and 31 of them are college and university teams. Uh, they spent six months working on this year's Explorer, including building and printed circuit boards, wiring control software, developing sensors. The competition is June 26th through June 28th in Alpena, Michigan. The team has won the competition in 2007, 2011, 2013, and placed two th third overall in 2012. Sounds like they're the ones to beat. Yep, they won. They wrote a 25-page technical manual explaining the machine's capabilities and operations. And what they should be doing is focusing on who is a sponsor of this program because he's the one who is motivating them, keeping them together, and should get some kudos. But uh, congrats to the kids. And it's a look at that. That's an imp impressive-looking... ROV here they're showing them testing in a pool uh, God, that's not I, I that's, don't want to say anything derogatory but does the word geek come to mind <laughs> well yeah yeah but that looks there's like a hell of a of, machine though there's plenty of times for dating as you get older that looks like plexi, uh, plexiglass they're using for their shields 
did that. Go back to the other photo. Yeah. Isn't that plexiglass? Yeah, it looks like they got some plexiglass on there. A lot, a lot easier a lot, to work with. A metal. lot of aluminum angles. Yeah. Where they, they're... That is yeah, cool. Like some prefabricated pieces, you know, extruded aluminum pieces. They've got some holes either uh, they buy them pre-drilled or they're drilling themselves. Um, you know, got some... Yeah, it's 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 a nice looking... I mean, and you think high school kids did that. Well, you take a look. They had the big robotics competition up here at St. Joe High School, mm-hmm. you know, a couple of months ago. That was freaking awesome. I didn't get to see that. So they had some pretty impressive robots oh, there. Oh, yeah. Well. There's some really smart cookies out there. Well, you look at what they have access to. Because that's, I, you know, I started in computers when I was well built pre-high school. And there was not a lot of us doing it. And the things we got excited about now, they do right out of the box. I mean, we were inventing things. Well, they bypass so much that you don't you don't have to do now. Oh yeah, you I don't mean, have you to. You don't everything. do DOS. You don't. <laughs> no, right. I mean, that's what we were doing. I mean, half of it was booting it up, and you know, we had 4K of memory space to write software in, so you were getting really tight and compact. But now you've got these single board processors. I mean, you can do a lot of advanced things, and then a camera. You know, my dad when he he, he went to the National Science Fair when he was in high school. And he was doing an atomic cloud chamber for his project, which got him to the National Science Fair. The guy across the aisle from him, it was a video camera is what got him there. And he had built this video camera. It was the size of a file cabinet. And it said display only. And the reason he couldn't win is because his dad was the guy who invented it. So he had basically worked alongside his dad and taken the parts and made one that got him there. But they had, I, they, I don't think they actually disqualified him. But you think about what that says, this technology miniaturization, that little GoPro camera you can get for, depending on what version, three ninety nine. that would be a billion dollars oh, worth of technology yes. 50 years ago. Yeah. Well, what is it they say? You've got more computerization in your watch, yeah, the the, the modern watches than yeah. did, they did on the initial yeah. uh, space vehicles. Yeah, there was uh, something I'm trying to remember what the number was, but it was something like all the computing power in 1970s is less than a single home computer. That's scary. Yeah. That is scary. So you, you what's things, it going to be like in 50 years from now? Yeah, and and it's that's being mass produced. So every day, you're just Champ, you're just stamping out these processors. You, you're doing massive parallel computing. You've got graphics co-processors. The amount of horsepower and computing capacity that's out there. Uh, and, you know, to, to get our, maybe we need to do our science fiction moment, but uh, you start getting into artificial intelligence. I could you know. do with some of that. Yeah. Well, yeah, we could use some, but uh, if that ever comes to fruition, they're going to go, what do I need all these organic things around me? And speaking of... I think uh, they did a movie on that, didn't they? Yeah. I think there's been Arnold a few. was in it, I think. Yeah. So now, this goes right on in. The, the One of the world's earliest computers, the, use, the Woods Hole Institute, is going to use their hard suit or newt suit to go look for the... Okay, now i got to pronounce this. And I, and I know in my head I've heard it a million times. Is it the Anthakira shipwreck? That was, if you if you follow any of that, it was a uh, a Roman wreck by that was discovered by Greek sponge divers in 1900s, and they pulled it up, and there's this metal device, and it's a computing device that was used to uh, they they think for the orbits of the uh, or the position of the planets. Is that the astrolab you're talking? This was it was uh, you know they they always you know, the modern man likes to believe that all men before them were idiots. Yeah. They're the only ones right. that have gotten smart. This was. It was basically a watch, but you had this hand, this this crank, and it was all geared. Yeah, I know and, the one you're talking about. Yeah, and yeah. and you could go and find. It could tell you where to predict where planets were, and and 
that's day and night. Uh, but what they're doing is they're going to go dive on that on this that wreck and other wrecks again with this newt suit, and they're hoping to find some more because they they believe that that was special, such a special device. There wasn't just one that existed. So we will see. Now it's from the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute. Anthicura. It's like one of those things. If I think of, if I read it, you can't. You can never. If you hear somebody else say it, you can say it. If you read that, there's no way. <laughs> Well, that does it for Scuba News. Let's go ahead and talk about diving. We've been doing quite a bit of diving over the last few weeks. And uh, I got some diving in. Matt got some diving in. Jim got some diving in. Has there been anybody, other than Jim Kleeman dive, Jim Kleeman needs a dive, has uh, anybody not been diving? Or kayaking. Or kayaking. And kayaking. And kayaking. I use mine for both. Yeah. Uh, we're finally getting active. The freaking water at Pawpaw was 70 degrees, all the way down to 20-something feet. Wow. How, how, how bad was this? I'm sorry? How was the viz? It's been changing. Uh, I got in, got out again today, for example, and the lady stopped and talked to me. said, are you part of the group that was out here the other day? And I says, no. I said, well, they were applying to more of that chemical treatment to the stuff. And I said, oh, excuse me, when? And I said, they normally post that. And he said, yeah, they did, but some kids tore it down. I said, could you show me where that is, please? And I've been, you know, I got like five dives in it this week, right? In the middle of their freaking dump of that chemical. Oh. Nobody told me. <laughs> So I'm out there thinking, now I'm going to grow an appendage or something like this. Well, the skin color is a little that. different different than... Yeah, I thought the redness was... With that, maybe I'm a, having an allergic reaction to something in the water. But I, you're not sprouting any weeds. I was looking for gills. That would be all right. <laughs> if you get some, get some gills out of the deal. Yeah, but I really dislike it whenever you do that, and then suddenly you realize you're in the wrong zone. I call the... Uh, Part from the natural resources when they were poisoning lampreys, mm-hmm. finding out where they doing that in the St. Joe River down in Niles, where we I reported we've been getting lampreys. No, not going to happen, not going to happen, blah, blah, blah. Well, the hell you say that person didn't know that they were dumping lampreys. Oh, they'd already done it. Uh, they were doing it the week I called, and I found out all the, you know a week later after I'd been out there. Diving. And it's like, okay. Maybe we need good. to get, there needs to be a central repository where they report where they're doing this stuff so we can avoid it. Well, I called up and, you know, I said, we're diving out there and this, that, and the other, and we not really concerned, but yeah, I don't sure. want to be at the point of entry where they're dumping gallons of this stuff in. Well, I'm sure their concern is that whenever somebody calls them and probably whining about that they don't want it in there, our position is that if it has to be in there and you're doing it, at least let us know so we can avoid exposure to it. Yeah, or minimize it anyway. Yeah. I mean, you in your suit, you might as well go naked. <laughs> well, we, that, that's something that we'll talk about here at the end. How naked that, diving? Yeah. No, no, we'll be, we'll be talking about how diving may be changing for me. So uh, but so you've been doing pawpaw quite a bit. Have you gotten in the river at all in the last couple of uh, weeks? I, well, I was kayaking the river last week. Actually, this week too. Uh, just to check it out. Visibility sucks. And you're talking <laughs> a foot and a half. That's unusual. Well, and when was that, too? That was last week. That was last week. Well, that was actually, before, two days ago. That, that was, yeah, was before, and a half. before we had the the rain. Yeah. yeah we, we've had uh, just the last couple of days. Gosh, I there's been standing water everywhere. I mean, any place that's low that doesn't have a drain has, has been filled to the edge. So we had to have had four or five inches. Yeah. Well, I've been in the river a couple of times. Visibility, foot. But I'm going in safe areas I'm comfortable with. Yeah, and for the for the metric people, that's a that's a one third of a meter. <laughs> <laughs> and there's nothing out here that's going to eat me. And the few alligator turtles we have, I just 
I have a long rod I keep in front of me. The alligator turtles? Yeah. The invasive alligator turtle. Right. The one that doesn't exist anywhere, but we're special, and we have them in Barren Lake and in the St. Joe River in the Niles area. I looked that up to find out why. Uh-huh. <clears throat> but anyway, aside from that, yeah, Paul Paul's been a good week. Um, I'm doing a presentation at the museum, uh, Southwest Berrien County Museum. It's one out of Coloma. <clears throat> Excuse me. And as part of that, they asked me to do an update on the uh, conditions of the weeds and vegetation. And so I made sure I dove the five, actually six major points mm-hmm. that give me a good feel for what it's like and how well their sonar program is working. Okay, so that, that's what they're looking for. And, and you've dove it enough that you've got kind of a background history where you know what you had running into before. Right. And then what they're... What it is now. Yeah. And then I happened to come across their writing or their, their write-up for what the company who's doing it said it was. Uh-huh. And I'm going to send some video to the people because what they said ain't quite what I see. And I got the video to back it up. Now, what are they saying that there should be no weeds? Well, they're saying uh, the milfoil was eradicated and there are small sections that they're going to spot treat. Okay. I'm curious what a small section means. Now, when they say milfoil, so they're talking about that's what the goal was. That was the goal for me. And I, I would bet you 90%, maybe 95 Wonderful job. Right. But there are collections of that intermingled with a different grass. You can edit the time out. Let me find it real quick. I looked it up. They have a, it's called Starry Stonewort as an invasive grass. They have a ton of that out there. And I do mean ton. I can't pronounce that, but I'm going to call it Curly Leaf Pondweed, which is the official name. That has taken the place of milfoil. But that's still an invasive. Oh, yeah. And it's all over the freaking place. Is Uh, there any weed that should be there or have they all been replaced? Actually, there's 17 or something natural, normal stuff. But everything right here, uh, Fanworth, Story Stonewort, Eurasian Milfoil, Curly Leaf Pondweed, we have got. Milfoil is down tremendously, but I can find patches of that hiding in the pondweed. Okay, so they're, they're, well, they're not going to be happy. You you make sure that you've got like bodyguards with you when you come in because well i'm not i'm going to take the video and i it's like uh l and e bay uh-huh. outlet bay um i went over there by douglas bay i did the public launches at both parts the clay banks and, and i got video snapshots from all of those areas and it's like i'm not looking for it i'm swimming and there it is there it isn't there it is and uh it's not nearly as tough to navigate there's a couple of places that's pretty dense with the uh, pine weed but you know i can make my way but the visibility sucks. Uh, I was averaging like five feet, maybe, hmm. and I would have expected better. And part of it is due to the die-off of the millweed and the particulate and sediment has changed it. It's not quite tannic acid, brown, but it, you've got a lot of brown into the water now. Well, it seems that's natural. It seems like if you, you're putting something in that's killing the plants off because right. they break down because yes. they're no longer alive, yep. you're going to get that in there. Right. And they did their aeration system. Uh, the sonar treatment was a five-year program. It, it ended. Obviously, they did some spot treatments. Uh, they also put in 25 aerators in the mucky areas where we have deep silt. Uh-huh. And I'm talking 8, 10 feet plus. And the purpose of these aerators were to be subsurface, uh, low velocity. They percolate up, oxygenating and and helping reunite some of the chemicals, like getting rid of hydrogen sulfide. And it was not designed to give you turbulence on the surface, so you may have a little bit. And as the water comes up, it will then go back down. It'll aerate, coming up, and does a swirl. Mm -hmm. And that helps provide 
uh, oxygen for plant growth and fishes. It's interesting though that if you go to Indian Lake where they also did it, they used a different system of aeration and uh, that's the one we were passing over it and wondered, oh my God, the lake is about to erupt. Oh, It was forceful uh-huh. and you had a real big plume at the top, but it did the same thing. It came up, oxygenated really good, heavy water, light water, goes back down and makes a swirl current. And I'm curious how, and if you look at the PR, it'll say, well, ours is better than theirs. Well, well right. Whatever you make and yeah. is always better. But anyway, they got 25 of those, and that's another five-year project that you won't know how well it works for years. And you got to do a lot of water chemistry with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it ain't a bad idea, but if you go back to the root cause, which is drain control, stop it at the drain, then it don't get in the lake. Like phosphates. Well, yeah. And they have a geese, I didn't know they have a geese control out there. They have a, a permit from the DNR and they can round up geese at a certain time of the year and they ship them to some other sucker's place. Those guys crap 96, I think it was 96 times a day. Almost as much as I do. <laughs> Probably, but hopefully not as the same quantities. <laughs> um, but it's like, there's a monstrous amount of phosphorus. But but aren't geese, like, native? I mean, wouldn't it have been always geese? And they also say, by the way, don't call them Canadian geese. They're not. They're Canada geese. That's the title. They're Canada geese, not Canadian geese. Well, so they don't, they don't, like, they don't, have, Canada. Pass, they don't have passports. <laughs> and the, yeah, they got to press the papers, eh? <laughs> but anyways, it, it is interesting. There is some... Uh, <coughs> good changes to the positive mm-hmm. but they got a ways to go and as long as everybody else is afraid to go there i got good hunting yeah well and that's one that's kind of my comment on water management in general is that if you look before man was here when things rained it absorbed in the ground when it couldn't absorb anymore it went to the next lowest spot pulled and collected and then your primary filters were marshes swamps fens yes and what we've done is we've gone, ooh, I don't want that water here because I need to farm, which I'm for agriculture. But they go and they, they put drain systems in, these evil drain systems. And what do drain systems do is how quick can I get this water from here to someplace else? So you get rain two inches over a, a county, untreated. So you collect all that water. You move it as quick as you can. It's like faster than a raging river. And then that's where it goes. It goes into all the rivers. Water is moving too quick from land to our bodies of water, and that's the problems. Well, a, a simple items like at uh, Paw Paw, you know, I fly around, I do my own maps and, and what have you, but the tr- the lake shape has changed, and part of it is because of seawalls. Seawalls are detrimental to good yeah. stewardship of the lake yeah. because you need a little erosion, and I don't mean aggressive floods and things like this, but you need the natural flow, not from the, the boundaries set up by seawalls. So you don't get that natural flow now, and mm-hmm. you get a total different pattern, which is not conducive to good health of the lake. Yeah, yeah. you, you, you need those soft boundaries, too, because you've got plants that are growing into it. Yeah. It's a way for animals to move in and out. And that was the other aspect. The sea animals can't, I mean, how the, they get up over the boardwalk and up the camp. Well, then also that was a natural way of wake. You know, we've got boats who create their own wake, but the winds can make plenty of waves, even in a small lake like yeah. Paw Paw Lake. And your cattails, your tree roots, everything that are in that soft boundary of the water dissipate that energy and prevent the yeah. erosion. Yes. So you put these seawalls, which if you've ever been in the bathtub and you splash and you see the water bounce all around, it doesn't do anything to slow it down. It just reflects it back yeah. to someplace else. Yeah. It was interesting. It was good articles I read on it. So, 
Anyway, it's been a fun week at Pawpaw, and I've had some success in collecting yeah, if you junk. Go to the mudclub.scubaobsessed.com website, and you will see everything that Mac's been collecting. Well, and I well, still haven't found my own Hutchie. And how many Hutchies have you found the last two weeks? I found two today again. One from <laughs> two Texas. Today. One from Texas. So Texas implant, import. Yeah. And you're not seeding them. No, no, no. I gave, like I said, I made my donation today to the library of a lot of bottles and uh, artifacts recovered from it. Oh, I'll have to show you a picture, though. I did find a wreck. I heard that you found some bones. Yes, I found um, definitely bones of a uh, larger vessel. Ain't no rowboat. And uh, I took a picture of what I believe is the bilge pump. Oh. It's about, how big is that one? Two feet? Two now, that, feet? now, wouldn't the library or museum longer? or something be interested in that? Well, she, she said if I could uh, identify maybe what wreck it was from, then we got some historical perspective. Because they only want stuff that is directly, you know, from this area. And if, uh, well, well by, by it's definition, sunk, it's sunk here. It's in this by, area. By definition, in Pawpaw Lake, it's yeah. there's there's no you're, you're you're not building something in New Brunswick and floating it into Pawpaw Lake. That was probably built at the right there at Pawpaw Lake. Didn't they used to have a dry dock? You said did you? Yeah, actually, they did. Uh, or they had a dock. They didn't really say how dry it was. But some of those boats that used to be on uh, Pawpaw Lake were built in Saugatuck, actually. Oh, really? They built them in Saugatuck? Yeah, we had navigation all the way down the south bend. From Pawpaw Lake? Yeah, you could navigate huge distances in the old days because you didn't have dams. Oh, before they had the little, because you get a lot of these little low, what yeah, they call yeah. low-height dams, the, the 5 to 10-foot dam. Right, but before that, you had keel boats, flat bottom rafts, basically. And, and these dams are not generating any power, people. These are dams that were put there because the people, the tourists in the summer would get there and they would see half their lake gone because it was a dry spring and they'd whine. So they put these dams in to retain some water so they had, you know, water to play around in. Yeah, it, it's interesting. Water is going to be a commodity that you need to invest in because 100 years from now, good quality water is going to be very expensive. Just take a flight around here and look at all the lakes that are sublimating, going away. Yeah, Because we have screwed one. up our groundwater system. And God knows what the fracking is going to do to your your water supply. Yeah, we, we've, uh, we've been pumping water out of the watershed at amazing rates. And you look at every farmer now, after the last few dry summers, now what are they doing? They're, they're irrigating. You can't, you have to have a certain productivity in a, in a piece of property. And you can't handle, if you don't get rain just when you need it, you got to be irrigating. At Barron Lake, they have an offset well pumping water into the lake to keep the lake level up mm. the natural system is not filling it up it's yeah. being drained off and sucked up by the sun yeah. well and we don't know what the natural system was because we've got them all dammed up so they're artificially large with uh, a lot of exposed area that are evaporating so we don't know we are our own worst enemy sometime we can be that's for sure yeah, well then uh, let's see what other diving we had we had the uh, out in lake michigan we went out and saw max wreck again Yes, I was very pleased. The visibility was not the greatest, maybe 40 feet, 45 feet, which I will take. I, I That was the first time I've been out this week in Lake Michigan, and this year in Lake Michigan, and I was happy with that. I, yes. That 50 feet, you couldn't see from the bow to the stern, but you yeah. could definitely see from the port to the starboard easily. Right. And you got more dead eyes, uh, more freeboard now. I could not believe it. And it's because when, when everybody said there was a little bit more, I'm picturing a couple inches. Yeah. We, we got. Nine inches, maybe, of uh, and that centerboard keel part, yeah, yeah. We got nine inches exposed where it was even. There's, in fact, there was a point of time last year where half of it was almost yes. covered up. Yeah, and the Havana uh, visibility there was only fifteen to twenty feet. Mm -hmm. But again, last year we had more wood. This year you got even more again. Yeah. Well, like on Max Rec, there was spots 
where we could see underneath deck boards. And yeah. that was a first time, yeah. you know, not, and I remember the, when the first year we dove on it, I could remember seeing deck boards and other, you know, everybody kind of noticed the one thing and that was what I noticed yeah. and we hadn't seen them again and now they're back. Yep. So we've, we've, nature has moved enough of the, of the silt, I guess is what you call it, the, the silt above the zebra mussel layer. And uh, it's, there's a lot of exposed boards yep. that weren't there before. And the Rockaway, another one, they had yep. good viz on it. Which is again just because you have good in one area, you know, ten miles away, everything that changes. Mean anything. But they had good vis up there at the Rockaway. Mm -hmm. uh, the Muskegon again, low visibility on the wreck, 20, 25 foot on the barrier. Mm -hmm. And when we were out there, we probably had about the same vis, but the fish was lacking. Yeah, really now, interesting. Now they went out again the the week we were on Max Wreck. They went out again to the Michigan City. So I was wondering right, if that right. changed. That's, that's, that's the one where they had the 15 to 20 foot viz okay. on the Muskegon. Good. So people are getting out. Uh, the SAS dives are growing great guns. They're averaging 22 to 25 people per dive. And they've got seven guys still running to complete every one for the end of the year because you, you get a gift, king of the world. Uh-huh. And I think there's seven guys tied first, and Richard is one of them. Yeah. Well, he I mean, does how many, every Wednesday. Well, how many, if he, gosh, when was the last time he missed one? Right. And I think there's 19. Uh -huh. That's a lot of commitment on oh, 19 yeah. Wednesdays. Yeah, it's Wednesdays. You have to, well, now he's retired, so he's almost, but he wasn't retired when he won it last no, time. No, that's correct. So you got the SAS guys, and they're really good. And then our guys are going, you name it, everywhere. Yeah. Somebody come back, oh, I was in Cancun. Yeah, lucky dog. Yeah. Well, and then we always got cheese fry down there in Florida. He's been, he likes to put pictures on Facebook every other week. Of, yeah, I'm going to send him a turtle or something. A turtle? We need to send him a turtle? Keep, he's afraid of turtles. Yeah. Um, I showed him that picture. I found that alligator snapper uh -huh. last summer. So I, I, I controlled him enough that I could take a stick and I wrote his name in the top of the shell <laughs> in the moss. So I said, you now have a named turtle in the, yeah. in the lake down here. Yeah, well, and I did see a fish on Max Rec. I'm not sure oh, what it is. the one that was eating the gobies. Yeah, because the, 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 there are gobies on there. You, when you come down, you, you, it was nice to see the visibility. And I came down, and as you start approaching stuff, the gobies go, ah, and they, they move around, and it's, it's like the, the bottom just silts up real quick, and it usually settles down fairly soon. But uh, he was hiding in, in, uh, along one of the rails, and he was just sucking up gobies. So Kevin got some good video of that. I'd like to see that because I have not seen anything eat those suckers. Yeah. And that would well, be good to see. If you ate those, I mean, he was a big fish. He was, I would say, more than 24 inches. Kind of an eel-like. He called it a dogfish or there lawyer? was some other. See, I call, I was, I always say it's a lawyer fish because it's really yeah. ugly. Yeah, but and it's long and skinny and almost looks like a funny looking fish eel. Yeah, that's what I thought yeah. it was. But he said he thought it was a dogfish or he used it some other name. Yeah. And I'm like, well, I've never seen either of those. So, yeah. uh, and I've seen this particular type of fish. There's usually like one per rack. I have never seen them during the daytime. I've seen them at night when you do a night dive on Havana. Oh. Those guys are everywhere. I've seen them in Havana, but that's because you've got uh, nooks and crannies. You got the down. nooks and crannies, and you got uh, you've got Kirk and Bob with the their laser lights where they're like yep. the the artificial suns yeah. that they're putting in the crevices, and and they would point, and you could see them back in there. But that yeah, this one was, and he well, when I was doing my uh, safety stop. He swam up. He was swimming up to the surface. So I'm like, I don't know what that is. You got full, needed a burp or something. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, I like Bob's lights. Uh, if you don't know what we're talking about, Bob usually has the best of the technologies, and he's got some very high-powered LED lights. Yeah, he, he had well, a... We call them the sun. Well, when he got an upgraded, I took his old one, and the old one is the moon. 
because the new one is the sun. Yeah, he, yeah you the, don't want to look at it. It's like a laser in your eye. Yeah, the old one was an HID canister light, uh, and it was. I mean, well, that was his, his, old, his initial old one. I've got his upgrade to the LED. Oh, that's right. He did upgrade that. that right. And now he's got the super whammy dying LED. Yeah. But I can follow in his cast off glow and have good viz and see. I don't have to worry about where my partner is. I just turn towards the light. Go to the light. Yep. Yeah. So we're getting out and that's the key. Yeah. It, it's perfect time of the year. Yeah. I think everybody's boats are, are working. All the dive club boats are all going. Yeah. So... One of the advantages of joining the club is that you always have somebody with uh, vessels. In fact, we've had a few times where the, we filled them up. Yes, we have. Uh, Bob's boat was had, full. Jim's boat was full. And then we had Sir Larry take his boat out. Yeah. And then you got Ken and Lucy. They've got a boat uh, as well. Yeah, they have. The, he's been under the weather from uh, injury during the winter, so he's not mm-hmm. uh, able to handle the weight on his back yet. So he's not. Maybe it sounds like maybe side mount. So, oh, yeah. Side mount. <laughs> Yeah, maybe down the road. After he retires. I think that's his goal, and that's the summer, I believe. End hey, of the summer. He, he's been at that retirement age, but for reasons that we won't mention the show, he's been delaying. So I guess it just it means he'll appreciate it all that much more when it finally happens. Yep. And hopefully he keeps active when that happens. I always get concerned when some people retire. It's... I was going to say, yeah, I, I'm glad I left the cubicle life early. I mean, I did still had to work, but I worked a different schedule, and it worked for me. Yeah. And I just feel sorry for all you people out there in Radio Land who have cubicle jobs. Yeah. Well, I, for, for those who've been keeping track, uh, you know, I apologize last week for no show. I was traveling for work. Uh, but, but vehicles seem to have been a challenge for me. I went from having three, the dive truck, the dive SUV, and the dive van. Uh, all those are no longer running. <laughs> the uh, the truck got totaled, and we just finally got the check for that. Uh, the uh, SUV transmission went out yesterday, and the uh, the van, the lower air intake is dead. So I've been working on getting replacements for those. So I picked up a, a new air-ish used dive vehicle. Transmission's getting rebuilt into the other dive vehicle. The van, I'm not sure yet. I haven't made a decision yet as to what's going to happen. So as much as we appreciate those cards and letters and four-star reviews, money is really, really yeah, tight. And yeah, we that, could use any, you know, yeah. pennies. Yeah, the, like the transmission is $2,500. I could have a hell of a dry suit for what I'm putting into that transmission. And it's almost like it knows that I, I could complain because it seems like when it happens, I've actually somehow have the money to deal with the situation, but it does not leave you anything for extra. Oh, hell. Some people like to eat, too. Well, you know, as people who have seen me are aware, that's uh, something I've been doing for quite a while. <laughs> but uh, the one the one thing we did tease at the beginning of the show is that I may be getting a dry suit. I and how act- is this minor miracle occurring? This minor miracle occurred because somebody else bought a used dry suit and the feet are too big. Oh, is that the Viking? It's a Viking. All right. You can't go wrong with the Viking. Yep. So I was able to put it on after the last dive. Uh, Kevin, who had the dry suit, he said, eh, this looks like about the right size, and I'm able to fit into it. I should probably lose 20 pounds either way, but I can, I can zip it up. Uh, look, I'm going to need to trim the seals, which I'm kind of nervous. I told Jim Kleeman, I said, you're going to need to come over. We'll go in my basement with the air conditioner blast on. Because my, my, my fear is to get in there and not be able to get out and die of uh, heat yeah. stroke. You've got those ridges on the neck and do them slow and small cut. Yeah. You, once it's too big, it's too big. Yeah. 
But the nice thing is this, okay, the, the history behind this dry suit, somebody bought it new, dove it six times, and it sat in the closet for a few years. And then Kevin got it, and there was a, like a slight tear in one of the seals. So he replaced those seals. And you can see the other seals, the guy was telling the truth because you know, anybody who's looked at those Viking dry suits, as you replace seals, they start getting gunked up and the seams start to change. And it's this is the first time they've been changed out. Uh, but he his, his his he didn't have big feet like me. And you know what they say about big feet. So I'm yeah. not gonna go there. <laughs> so it, it's a good good suit for me. I think they bound my feet together as a child. Oh, that, that's walk daintily. Yeah. So yeah, I'm the the dry suit. I'm I'm looking forward to it. So I'm gonna pick it up Saturday. So that's provided that no other vehicles die or get destroyed it'll prevent me from diving plus my dive gear is in the back of the explorer which is now in a lift in in the garage (laughs) i had to run over there grab my computer out of it because it's oh man and as much as we dive it's still interesting how many tales of woe you can have during a dive trip Uh, i think richard dove last week and realized he had a hole in his neck seal he realized when he went down but a a wet dry suit is better than a wet wet suit when it's cold yeah and then bob had his brand new suit and he put a P valve in it. And I do mean P E E valve. Yeah. So you don't have to take the freaking zipper apart. And it didn't have a check valve in it. For as much as it cost, everybody assumed, and you know what assume means, uh, that it had a check valve and it didn't. Whoops. So it now has a homemade secure system to stop the water from coming in. Isn't a check valve a normal thing for a P valve? One would have thought. And if you read the description, it says ain't got one. Oh, it says you it got, doesn't. You got to read the little details. Well, why would you not put one in? I mean, I don't know. Wow. Especially as so, much as they cost. See, and and I'm imagining when you have a P valve that doesn't have a check valve in it, the cold water's coming into the spot you least want the cold water. Yeah, I, I get <laughs> my feet get cold. I got to pee. What can I say? And that water's going to go down to your feet, and you're going to add warm water to it. So that's one of those. Yeah. I, I'm. We won't go there. I was going to suggest, you know. <laughs> You, you probably know where I was going to go with that. Yeah, it was it was heading that way. Oh, uh, and then we had uh, Jim. His 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 dry suit doesn't tend to be that dry. It, it was really good until he dove off the boat or the bench, whatever it was, that had the nail in it that was impacted on the suit. So when he left, the nail stayed there and made little serrations or cut into the suit several inches long. Yeah. He has not been able to fix that. And, of course, it never happens with an old suit. It happens with it just after you get it. It's kind of like the the car that you get the door ding the first week you get it. So, yeah, his suit is leaking. But as as you've pointed out, it's still better than uh, a wetsuit, which is what mine is. Mine is a fully ventilated, full-flow wetsuit. I should patent it because it's got unique characteristics, not positive for wetsuit design. That plastic stuff you dip your pliers in to coat them, you would be better off if we painted that on your body. Yeah, get in a drum. You could just, like, dunk me in. Maybe they'd be a fundraiser. Maybe they um... Oh, I think the other nice thing is we did finally get out and we scanned, did a little mapping on the clay banks. Oh, yeah? And that, I don't know where it came from, but there's now a buoy out there, red. Amazing how those buoys I, show up. It was just amazing. It's great because I did go back out last week to dive it, and this way you didn't have to look for it. Yeah. And uh, well, we because we, we dove that, or I didn't dive because I was flying. My 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 dive on your wreck, I had 24 hours when I got out of the water before my plane, which I'd have been okay. I could have gotten the other dive, and the flight was only delayed three times. <laughs> but uh, you don't know that in advance. But yeah, we did, went out to the clay banks. 
and there's some new structures there. There's some ridges and some high spots, so it's going to be fun exploring that. Yeah. And I think Jim went this last weekend, didn't he, on that? I'm not sure. Now, uh, there was an article on our uh, club site, and I think the uh, Facebook site for the club, huh? on Lime Lake, and that also has a valleys and canyons there that look surprisingly like the claybacks. Oh, you're looking for them? I'm looking for it now. Yeah, and the guys went out to Gilboa. They've been a lot of dives. Yeah, we got a lot of them in. You need to go to mudclub.scubaobsessed.com. And that's not updated either. That's only June 1st, and I have not. You haven't put the other I, ones I'm up? I'm almost refusing to put anything up if you don't send me a picture. Well, I figure if you're with me. Well, yeah, if <laughs> yeah. I'm with the people, I do the pictures. I do the photo. That's why I'm not there in that one. But yeah, a lot of guys go out, and it looks like we're not diving, and we are. These lazy butts would get together and do a picture. Yeah. I mean, digital, how hard is it to do? That's not at all. Not anymore. And we've got a lot of them. Yeah, I almost hate to put my stuff up there because it looks like Don does diving again. That's yeah, fine. I mean, you got a lot of Kevin. Did you see the bell? Yeah, look at that bell. He's, that's uh, cool. And that's a huge freaking jug, and it cleaned up outstanding. Yeah, when he's saying a jug, it's an old ceramic jug. Yes, a very, the biggest one I've seen. It's probably... At now, is your wife double. letting you keep that one? She's telling me I should probably look at that a little long before I give that away. I was going to donate that and the bell back to the museum. So if mm -hmm. we decide. And you got another tackle box. Any good lures in there? Um, actually, I didn't find that one. That was Kevin. That oh. was down at Woods Lake. But you noticed the GoPro to the left. That's a GoPro? We found two GoPros. Really? Yeah, both he had lost. The one, I, <laughs> the one I found, which is that one, had been lost last year. He took it as a demo, lost the damn thing, so now he's paid for a camera he doesn't have. Oh, that, so that's like a new the worst one. way. So we're out there trying to get a picture of the new wreck that he found for, you know, that uh, he went to get that object for the preservation aspect of the carnival area. See, we, he, he needs to go and send something into him. Yeah, keep takes a lick and keeps on ticking because... The camera was totally dry. It booted up with a little charge, and the disc uh, had its pictures from last year. With any good pictures? Probably not. <laughs> I didn't see them. And that's a different style, too. Yeah, it's a little bit older style, but heck, now you got a backup camera. Yeah, but my baby was that one right there. That is a Coca-Cola bottle, my oldest one I've ever found. Now, that does look old. Is, yeah. that, is that like a corker? No, no, it's, it's a crown top. Crown top? But it is Coca-Cola. I think the only older one you're going to find is the Hutchie. And I'd love to find a Hutchie wow. Coca-Cola. You're talking a couple of Now, do you, have you valued that? Of course, it's five. No. It's not more than $5. No, but did you notice the lightning stopper on the right? And there's a glob top on the left. And the milk. I mean, I got all the classics in one freaking dive. <sighs> How can you, you can't Well, that, that just tells you how much is out there. Because these are just samplings. I mean, you're going in this huge lake and you Actually, just. Actually, this is not a big lake. This is, this is the one in Kalamazoo. Oh, but, so it just means you haven't been there as much as you've been in the other lakes. Yeah, I, I've been there before, but I was at the Now, has Kevin ends. stopped inviting you now that you pull all those good bottles out? No. <laughs> He's like, okay, Mac, we've seen the, the we've in, seen what you can do. The uh, intent is not to take bottles. And the first time we went, though, the property of the person we dove off of, they have first choice for anything they want and the quantity they want. They want them all, they can have them all. And that woman had good taste. <laughs> <laughs> she took the good ones. Damn, she took all the good ones. But, hey, she'll put them in the window. They look nice. And she's going to remember us for years. Yeah. 
and her kids are going to figure how the hell do we get rid of these bottles when she passes? Yeah, they'll probably go to the antique store. Yeah, but now, has, the, has the, Kevin the, found anything more? Because he was talking about that he wanted he was working with the museum there, and they wanted examples of the amusement park that used to be at right. that lake. Well, it burned down basically in 1923. Uh, this was like a Coney Island for inland people. Uh, they actually had uh, balloonists would go up on a tethered balloon, and they'd have parachute jumps. Now, that's pretty awesome in 1920s. Uh, they'd have a portable carousel. They had a wooden roller coaster, a dance hall, skate place. Uh, it was quite the place to go. And what they found, like I said, it, it burned, I think, in 1923. He was out there, and he found a electric meter box. And he almost tossed it away because it was Japanese, or had a Japanese title and all this. But he kept it, went back, archives, found the, the company still exists. It's in the States. And they had the records, including the serial numbers for that meter. And that's how he proved that that was the same vintage that was probably, that meaning the meter was probably used at the purveyor. Yeah, so it was probably the meter on the side of the building that ran the power in. And it, yeah, and it looks similar to what we have now, but a little different. Yeah, just an and older the, the style. The construction is different, but it proves that, hey, there's stuff out there. We were looking for the carts from the roller coaster. Mm -hmm. uh, back in the 70s, um, other gentlemen were out there taking their wheels off. But that's, why not? That was junk. Otherwise, yeah. we wouldn't have left it there. But it would have been nice to be able to find one now. Uh, well, we found what looked like to be one, but uh, if you take a 50-gallon drum, cut a hole in it, and then let it sit on the bottom for 50 years, how useful is that drum going to be? Yeah. It's not restorable. Yeah. He had, uh, didn't he also find a boat down there? Yeah. We checked that out, and that's why we went, and that's why he lost the camera. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that magnification factor of one-third? Mm-hmm. It came into play because it was about one-third smaller than he thought. Oh. And it was extremely, extremely brittle. There's no way you could bring that up. Okay. Uh, you could touch it and it would shatter. Yeah. So, so your your history in the water does eventually break down. So yeah. What we're trying to do is we've got some old pictures, postcards, of some ornate structures on the entry gates. Mm -hmm. You know, they had marble and things like that. We're trying to find out or find a big piece like that that's out in the lake. Okay, so because the idea was that when that burned, everything just fell in the water and nobody went and or pulled it out. Or they dumped it out. And if you look at the construction and the evolution of the lake and the houses now, you can find where a lot of the buildings were because there was a couple of new houses built on the original frames. Oh, okay. The foundation. But they added a marsh area and they put up like a seawall that I mentioned earlier, mm -hmm. filled in certain parts. Well, I think the part they filled in is where the original roller coaster was. Well, could part of the reason why they filled it in is because it was a bunch of trash there exposed you and you didn't want the kids out getting sight, into it. So you just throw some sand and plants and stuff yeah. on it and you. About 12 foot of dirt and sand. Yeah. But hopefully we might get lucky. Uh, I have done some metal detecting down there and found a couple of older coins back in the 1900s, early 1900s. So it would be nice to get some night tokens from the amusement park. So we'll go back with the detectors and do a little survey there. Okay. And again, water is warm, people. 20 feet, no suit. Almost don't need a suit. Yeah, we're still a few weeks behind as far as what normal temperatures would be from what I understand. Well, I am very content on where I'm diving. Shallow water muck diver, what can I say? Yep. Come on up and you can dive with me. We can go out someplace. Yeah, drop a line. You can call us, contact us at theshow at scubaobsessed.com. Also go to our website, www.scubaobsessed.com. You can listen to us on iTunes. You can listen to us on Stitcher. We're also on the WRVA, RVA, WRVO radio network, Rich Viola's radio network. Thank him for putting us on the air. 
let's see. Also, let us know how you listen. If there's some other way of, of going and listening to us. I think we're getting to that time of the show. Do you have something special tonight? I wouldn't call it special. Uh, they're all special. Yeah, they're all special. Or we're special for, for saying. Um, this one uh, was submitted by Facebook. It's similar to one we've done before, but you know what? I'm going to call this one a new one. You know, hopefully you know, selective amnesia or brain trauma. Uh, a little Elder f- man's brain fart. <laughs> it could be. I'm well, ready. You ready? Oh, yeah. Okay, so here we go. A loud Texan walks into a dive club who ha- also happens to have a bar. I mean, don't we wish? Slaps his wallet down and says, I'll give $1,000 to anyone who can drink two bottles of rum. They all look at each other and, well, doubting themselves. Then Dan, the old-timer from Michigan, gets up and leaves. The Texan is confident that his money is safe until an hour later. Dan walks back in, goes to the bar, downs two bottles of their best rum. The Texan is dumbfounded, but he hands over $1,000 anyway. As he gives the money to Dan, he asks... Why did you leave for so long? Dan replies, I had to go to a few other bars to make sure I could do it. Where's the groan at? <laughs> Let's see. Don't we have that so, one? I, I, we, got, we, got the, we got the crickets. Nah, that's not sufficient. Nah, I didn't get the groan. We got no this. service for you! <laughs> no, we, we need to go through and get some, some, oh, groans or something. Yeah, we do. Something that sounds like an old man getting up and his knees are hurting. <laughs> yeah, I don't. We'll, we'll find some. We've added a few more. Let me see. Uh, here's a new one. This is one that uh, Jim will want to play. Yeah, maybe that. Possible. I noticed we didn't have any squirrels tonight. No, oh, you, mean, you mean like that? Squirrel! You like that one? No, we, we stay pretty much on track. Uh, yeah, you, you almost have to have somebody else keeping us going, but... Until next time, go out there and get wet. And stay safe. John Coleman, and the name of this presentation is There Is No Significant Global Warming. And I'm the guy that is just doggone sure of that. Now, you may think that I'm just a paid-off shill, big oil, or something of that sort. No, 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 no. They've never given me a nickel. I'm a television weathercaster with 60 years experience, a meteorologist. Uh, I was the first weatherman on Good Morning America. I'm the man who founded the Weather Channel. And... This is my accomplishment. Broadcast Meteorologist of the Year from the American Meteorological Society, of which I was a professional member for many years. I finally quit the AMS when it became very clear to me that the politics had gotten in the way of the science and it was time to talk about something else. Now, did we have a winter or what in 2013, 14? Oh man, did we ever. When I called for my brother in Ohio, his wife, said he wasn't coming in from shoveling the snow to talk to some guy in California. Oh, man, how could you tout global warming when it was the coldest, snowiest, bitterest winter in 30 years, which it was across the United States? And it would take a lot of gall to put out a statement as our NOAA, the National Oceanographic and and Atmospheric Agency did, claiming that it was the Warm 2013 was 
the, the warmest year. I mean, sheer silliness. It is manipulation of the data. Now look, let's get something clear right from the beginning. I love this planet Earth. I've been a citizen of this Earth now for darn near 80 years, and it's all I got. If I thought that we, mankind, were damaging this beautiful little sphere, this blue marble on which we live, I would be terrified and give every ounce of energy I had to stop what we were doing. But I have studied the issues of so-called global warming, or now they call it climate change since the warming has stopped. I have studied the issues carefully and completely as a good scientist can and reached an absolute firm conclusion that there is no global warming. Now this Earth, it's spinning around the sun at 17,000 miles per hour. It is traveling with the sun uh, in our little uh, spiral off the Milky Way galaxy at uh, over 100,000 miles an hour. And that galaxy is flying out in the universe as the Big Bang continues to expand the universe. And we are all traveling very, very fast. And what a ride. The Earth has been traveling for four and a half billion years. And as best I can tell, it's going to stay just fine for another four billion years. But wait a minute. During that period, we have had ice ages and we have had interglacial periods. And we're going to continue to have those natural variations in climate. But man-made climate change, I'm sure it's not going to happen. That's why I sent out this tweet today. This tweet went out to Al Gore. It went out to the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change of the United Nations, to the Sierra Club, to the Democratic Party uh, National Committee. And what it said is, where is your so-called global warming? Because if you chart the temperatures, you can go back into the 70s and come up to today, and there's almost no warming. I mean, less than one degree warming since 1978, and absolutely no warming since 1998. What kind of deal is that? Well, I'll tell you what kind of deal it is. It's the kind of deal that's full of silliness if you're promoting climate change and global warming. We are in one of the most stable and beautiful periods of Earth's climate you could hope for. And look at the stark contrast between the spaghetti of the many models of atmospheric warming created by various uh, people who have gotten tens of millions of dollars of federal grant money and worked for the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And there's the average of all their models. And then here's the real temperatures as measured both on Earth and with our satellites. And <laughs> folks, it's just not happening. That's why I posted on Facebook this memo today to the scientists and organizations that take that $4.7 billion a year of tax money to continue your so-called global warming research. And I say to them, it's bad science. Ladies and gentlemen, please cease and desist the global warming and climate change scare campaign. It's harmful to the continued advancement of our civilization. The government actions to counter so-called carbon pollution have already raised the cost of fuel, electricity, and food by an average of $1,000 a year for the average American family of four. 
And the $4.7 billion of our tax money a year being issued to you and your organizations is funding a wide range of meaningless studies based on this bad science that says that carbon dioxide radiative forcing is causing warming. That money could be productively spent on energy research, including graphene and thorium and other new energy sources. Your manipulated climate computer models have dramatically failed both in temperature predictions and their predicted warming signatures. Please admit your errors. It's time to put principle and, and, and that above personal wealth and status and help restore basic scientific principles to climate research. So I posted the memo and I sent the tweet. But you know, I know that you are highly skeptical of what I'm saying. How can you believe me when you see this constant stream of global warming news reports day after day, year after year, printed on the internet sites, uh, in all the newspapers, they still print with ink on paper and roll it up and throw it in your driveway and uh, send it in a magazine. And it's full of this stuff. I mean, it's just full of it. Even our, our government, our National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Agency of the federal government is, has established websites to promote climate change. And of course, the New York Times, it's been leading that all along. And that's the power of money. That $4.7 billion a year is buying all of this bogus research that is leading to all of these bogus reports. So let me just give you the hard cold facts. I showed you this when I tweeted it. There isn't any warming going on. There hasn't been. Nothing significant is happening. Oh, we have extreme natural variations in temperature. That's a hard cold fact. But this recent warming, it's no different than the warming that has occurred many times before naturally. We had a, a medieval optimum uh, when the Roman Empire flourished, and we had the little ice age when times were very tough. This little warming we have now, gosh, that's no big deal. That's just no big deal. Now, you want to talk about big deals. This is a hard, cold fact. Uh, from the ice cores, uh, we have determined that we have vacillated on Earth between extreme ice ages and these beautiful interglacial periods of warming weather. And we live in the most recent of these interglacial periods. We've been in it for 12,000 years. Probably have another 10, 12,000 years to go before the next ice age comes on naturally. And can we cope with that? Now you hear about uh, the ice melting at the North Pole. What ice melted at the North Pole? Well, it got pretty low in 2007, but this is the last bunch of years since we've had satellite observation. We've had it for about 35 years. And here's where the ice is now, and it's no big deal. And those polar bears. <laughs> there are more polar bears living today than have been alive any time since we've been counting them. And they are living all around the North Pole in 19 populations. They're doing just fine. That's a hard, cold fact. How about the South Pole? Well, our South Pole, is, as I record this, is in summertime, so the ice melt is near the peak for the season, but you'll note it's well more ice there than above average. It's near an all-time high. Oh, but the water is rising along the coast. Oh, is that right? Well, it's rising at the rate of about six inches per hundred years as part of this interglacial period. I mean, when... When the North America was covered in a 400-foot thick ice core, 
at the end of the last ice age, the oceans were low, and then they, as that ice melted, of course, the oceans have risen, but that rise has been gentle and it's not important. And then, oh, superstorms. We didn't have a hurricane hit the U.S. in 2013, uh, the year before, only a meager effort. And that so-called Superstorm Sandy, it was no big deal as hurricanes go. It didn't compare with Katrina, didn't compare with Andrew, and neither of those compared with the Galveston hurricane of 1900, long before man had any influence on climate. Oh, but tornadoes. How about those tornadoes? Well, here's the chart of tornadoes. Strong tornadoes have been diminishing. I mean, we now have so many good radars and everybody's taking pictures with their phone. We see every tornado, it seems, that forms. But folks, uh, there are fewer and less strong. Oh, and drought. Well, we had a big drought in Texas. It vanished. Now we have a big drought in California, getting a lot of publicity. If you look at the records, California falls into drought about once every 11, 12 years. And then we get an El Nino, and California gets the rain, comes out of the drought. I mean, we've got 40 million people living in a desert. <laughs> of course, they're going to have a water problem. So what? Uh, it's, it's natural. It's not man-made. And it, it comes and it goes. It takes care of itself. Heat waves? What heat waves? We haven't had a killer heat wave since the 50s. So I've plotted all these hard, cold facts and presented them to you. And then I compare them to what you read in the press, what you hear on the air, what the networks tout. And you say, man, what a difference between reality and what's there. Does Coleman know his reality? You bet I do, folks. I study it every day. But how did this strange, strange bad science, how did this global warming, climate change, euphor uh, this crisis, how did it get started? Well, that's the story I'm going to tell you today. And that story begins with this great scientist, a man named Roger Revell, who uh, was... Uh, graduate of the University of California, Berkeley, in oceanography, who then served in the Navy during World War II, and then became the director of the Scripps Institution of Oceanography, and who led research on the environmental impact of the atomic test on those atolls out in the Pacific following World War II, both atmospheric and ocean impact. And as that was coming to an end, uh, he had uh, greatly grown the Scripps Oceanographic Institution from a, you know, an isolated small organization to a huge uh, professional organization with many ships and hundreds of employees, it became clear he had to have something new to work on. And that's when he uh, decided that uh, something had to give. So he hired this man, Hans Seuss, a professor from the University of Chicago who had done studies on the effect of carbon in the atmosphere. And uh, Ravel thought maybe there was something to that. So he and Seuss did a research paper, and they put it out, in which they asked the question, is mankind's burning of fossil fuels to uh, you know, the coal in our stokers that were uh, heating our homes, the uh, oil in our cars, the fuel, uh, old-fashioned gasoline and old-fashioned cars, uh, was all of that creating a climate issue? And, uh, you know, we were, this was the 1950s, folks. And the world was pretty well caught in a smog. I remember it as a boy. Most of you are probably too young to remember, but I gotta tell you, uh, you choked in the, in the smog that hung over your towns during the winter months when those, all those uh, coal-burning stokers were going. And uh, the cars were just 
spewing out ash, and it was ugly because we were burning old-fashioned, untreated fuels in old-fashioned cars. Well, that was the beginning. That paper that Seuss and Ravel put out is actually the paper that started the global warming frenzy. Oh, man, did they start something. And uh, Ravel then, he became a powerful man as a basis of that. His science was used all over the world by other scientists. And uh, he started campaigning to establish a campus of the University of California co-located with his Scripps Oceanographic Institution at La Jolla, California. That was a big darn deal. Well, guess what happened? It was located there, but something happened. Ravel suffered the greatest defeat of his life. He had campaigned to get that university there and thought he would be its first chancellor, but the politics backfired on him, and he wasn't named chancellor of that university, and he was hurt. So what did he do? He suddenly made a big move. He changed his life. He packed up and went to Harvard, where he started the Center for Population Studies. So there he was in Boston in 1967. Now, what does this have to do with the global warming story? This is what it has to do with it. That first year, one of his students was this young man, Al Gore. The only science class Al Gore ever took. Rebel didn't remember having him in class. But, oh, Al Gore, who got a D in the course, was highly impressed. He was the son of a politician out of Tennessee, and he used what he learned there to start his global warming campaign. He wrote a book called Earth in the Balance. He ran for the U.S. Senate. He claimed that you know, the Earth was being challenged by our burning of fossil fuels, and it got him elected to the U.S. Senate. And there in the Senate, he conducted hearings, bringing in scientists, and spreading the scare of global warming. And that's when the money began to flow from the government to research. And this was the booby trap. Because once billions of dollars of government funding was going out to these organizations and universities and research groups across the nation, uh, and they had to back that global warming claim that uh, Al Gore was promoting with their research, the research began to pile up. And if you were a young scientist, you didn't have a choice. You couldn't put out a research paper that said, oh, what warming? You'd be out of a job. You'd lose your job, your car, your family. You'd be walking on the streets. No, you had to support it. Al Gore had taken Ravel and Seuss's research paper and used it to start the global warming campaign. And what did Al Gore say? He said, this is Roger Ravel. He was my mentor. He's my hero. He's the man who spread the alarm. Well, there was another man that picked that up. This man, Maurice Strong. Maurice had become a bureaucrat at the United Nations. And in 1972, he had a conference in Stockholm on the environment. And he, his whole goal was one world government. And he used that, the impetus of that global warming scare at that Stockholm conference to start the initiative that set up the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. So now we had the U.S. government and the United Nations both promoting climate change, and it all came from that Ravel Seuss paper and the research that followed and the dollars that were now flowing, and man, it was underway big time. So the IPPC, it had scientists and bureaucrats and politicians from throughout the world uh, it had the World Wildlife Federation, the Sierra Club. 
all the environmentalists, and they all got together and they voted that global warming was for real. Well, I got to tell you something. You don't settle science by a vote. <laughs> it's not a political issue. It's not a vote. It's science. Uh, but never mind. They put out their reports and they spent a lot of time telling us how we were destroying planet Earth. And they had fancy meetings in tropical uh, locations throughout the world. And the scientists uh, who supported global warming got the paid vacation trips to these big meetings and got to write these books and have their names and their careers. And man, it was a big deal. And what did Al Gore do? Well, he wrote a second book about global warming called An Inconvenient Truth. And we all know what became of that. His liberal friends in Hollywood turned that into a documentary, a sci-fi documentary, I might add, all about global warming. And uh, they voted themselves a Oscar Best Documentary Film of the Year in 2007. And then they turned around and Al Gore stood behind the IPCC president and they got the Nobel Peace Prize, all for scaring us about global warming. So Gore's movie, An Inconvenient Truth, became an absolute mainstay in American schools. How many times did you see it when you were going to school? Over and over and over again. And the global warming frenzy had truly reached its peak when all of that happened. Well, what happened with this man, Roger Revelle, who had started it all, the great scientist? Well, he had kind of lost interest in this population study center at Harvard and missed San Diego, I guess, in the beautiful Southern California climate. And he swallowed hard for his defeat there. And he came back to the University of California, San Diego, as a professor. And there, there he wrote these letters. And I want you to look at them. The first one goes from his desk to U.S. Congressman Tim Worth. Quote, we should be careful not to arouse too much alarm about the rate and amount of warming before it comes clear. And he wrote another letter here to Congressman Tim Bates. Most scientists familiar with the subject are not yet willing to bet the climate this year is the result of greenhouse warming. As you very well know, climate is highly variable year to year. The causes of these variations are not at all well understood. My own personal belief is that we should wait another 10 to 20 years to really be convinced that the greenhouse is going to be important for human beings in both positive and negative ways. So there it was. The man who had started the global warming campaign had put up the flag of warning. Hey, folks, this may not be for real. Caution, caution. Well, he even wrote an article that was published in a new science magazine called Cosmos. And he teamed with a uh, professor, uh, Fred Singer, to write that article. And that article was called, What to Do About Greenhouse Warming? Look Before You Leap. And the article concluded, and I quote, the scientific basis for a greenhouse warming is too uncertain to justify drastic action at this time. Wow. The man who had started it? Well, how did Al Gore react to that? Well, he said, I've made up my mind. Ravel is now senile. Pay no attention to that. The debate is over. And you've been hearing that now for 20 years. Al Gore won't debate anybody. And he claims it's for real. Well, we lost Roger Ravel. The fight had to go on without him. 
he passed away of a heart attack in 1991. Uh, and after he died, uh, his family joined with the people at Scripps to make him the father of global warming. Uh, they, they rejected his denialism, and so did the UNIPCC. But Dr. Singer, he was made to be uh, the scapegoat for it all. They said he had caused it. Well, I finally was able to interview Dr. Singer about this controversy. He joins us live from Washington, D.C. Dr. Singer, what was Roger Revelle's view of carbon dioxide as a greenhouse gas when you co-authored that Cosmos article back in 1990? Uh, he was very relaxed about it. He basically uh, looked at this as a grand geophysical experiment. After he and his collaborators like uh, David Keeling found that CO2 was in fact increasing in the atmosphere, he and his colleagues were wondering if it would have any impact on climate. He wasn't about to make any judgment on the matter until the data were in. Of course, at that time, by 1990, we had about more than 10 years worth of satellite data, and the satellites didn't show any appreciable warming. And this is what actually set off my own thinking on the matter. I wondered why, why what, was, what was going on? After all, carbon dioxide is a greenhouse gas. It's increasing. There's no question about that. Where is the warming? Well, it turns out that the atmosphere is much more complicated than the climate models believe. And uh, the warming is offset, probably, by a kind of negative feedback that comes from clouds and water vapor in the atmosphere. Well, are you saying that uh, back in 1990, that Ravel was uh, somewhat regretful of the excitement that he had caused about global warming? Uh, Ravel, um, at that time, had written some letters to his congressman and also to Senator Worth, uh, telling him to calm down, not get excited about it, but wait and see what would happen to the climate. In other words, he was telling him, don't assume that Things are going to warm up just because the models say so. Lavelle actually was very skeptical of climate models, much more so than, than I was. I was always more optimistic, hoping that they would improve enough so that they could really simulate what's going on in the atmosphere. Lavelle had not much faith in models. Well, since that time, many people have said that you were the one who manipulated Ravel, uh, that. Uh, you kind of calmed him down or changed his feelings in the way you put that article together. That uh, Gore said he was a senile old man when you co-authored that paper. And that uh, therefore you took your position on CO2 and more or less assigned it to Ravel. And uh, they put a lot of blame on you. Well, that's absolutely untrue. First of all, if you knew Ravel, uh, you would know that he was sharp to the very, very end and you could not change his mind. I mean, he, he knew what he was doing all the time. And furthermore, we have written proof. We have the letters he wrote to his congressman and to his senator. We also have an interview in Omni magazine. Uh, so there's plenty of evidence to show that he was quite independent-minded and that he didn't believe in global warming un until the data would show him a warming. And by 1990, they really weren't. 
That is, the satellite data were not showing the warming. Did you uh, and Ravel talk about gore at all? Actually, no, we never did, come to think of it. Uh, we, we only discussed the science. Um, Ravel's politics was very different from mine. He was, a, I think, a supporter of Gore. Uh, he was a, a, a liberal Democrat uh, by inclination and I think uh, in every other way. But when it came to science, we completely agreed. Interview that I had <laughs> did, did you, uh, with uh, Dr. Singer. Now, he's not the only scientist, please understand this, who questions this global warming frenzy this climate change scare. In fact, there are 9,000 PhDs that have signed a petition denying that CO2 is causing global warming. There's 31,000 scientists in total who have signed that petition. Uh, there is a whole organization of them. Uh, a, a huge group from NASA recently wrote to the United Nations and to the US Congress uh, saying, please stop the global warming scare. Uh, there is a, a strong movement opposed to global warming. You don't hear about it in the media because, you know, the media has that Al Gore liberal bias, so it becomes very tough. And at the Scripps Institution of Oceanography, Al Gore was a hero, and they proved it. They gave him the first Roger Revelle Award. Honored tonight at Scripps Institution of Oceanography, he was given an award in recognition of his environmental work. KUSI's Tom Jordan is live in La Jolla with more on that. Tom? Paul, Al Gore was the first ever recipient of the Roger Revelle Prize here at Scripps Institution of Oceanography. Honored tonight for his work in environmental preservation. A rousing welcome for a man continuing his campaign on environmental awareness and protection. Former Vice President Al Gore being honored for his efforts with the first ever Roger Revelle Prize. I want to uh, express my very deep and genuine gratitude uh, for this honor. The award presented at this dinner marking the 100th birthday of the late Roger Revelle, who headed Scripps Institution of Oceanography from 1950 to 1964. Gore studied under Revelle at Harvard University in the 1960s and credits him for igniting his passion on the environment. As a, a, a former student, still a student, trying to learn but still inspired by a great teacher who was a great scientist and a great man. Roger Revelle's work back in the 1960s was at the time considered revolutionary. Today, many scientists consider that work almost prophetic. And at that time, they wrote a short report, and we were told it was a very short report, saying that climate change is becoming an issue, the Earth is heating up, and therefore, something needs to be done about that. Al Gore says he was deeply moved by Revelle's early work. He now considered at the forefront of the global warming movement. A Nobel Peace Prize winner and Oscar-winning documentarian all from his work on the environment. Now he adds a new distinguished and personal honor to that list. I am deeply, deeply grateful. And tonight's celebration was part of three days of celebrating the life of Roger Revelle. Roger Revelle would have been 100 years old tomorrow. We are live in La Jolla. I'm Tom Jordan, KUSI News. 
Thanks, Tom. John Coleman believes there is no significant man-made global warming, and he travels the nation speaking on the topic. John has some insights now on Roger Revelle's scientific research and the effect that it had on Al Gore. John? Well, Revelle was a powerful man, a noteworthy scientist, and a significant force here in San Diego in the 1950s. There's no doubt that he's largely responsible for the high status of the Scripps Institute of Oceanography in its field and for locating the University of California at San Diego, UCSD, at La Jolla. While serving as director of Scripps, Ravel and one of his researchers wrote the first modern scientific paper that linked carbon dioxide released in the air from the burning of fossil fuels and the greenhouse effect and the warming of temperatures. Well, this triggered an avalanche of research that eventually became the impetus behind the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and the entire global warming movement. In the 1960s, Ravel moved to Harvard to establish a center for population studies. This is where Professor Ravel encountered student Albert Gore. He involved Gore and his classmates in the tabulating of data from a carbon dioxide study. Gore was so impressed, he wrote about it in his 1992 book, Earth in the Balance. That became the story for the movie, An Inconvenient Truth. The Oscar and the Nobel Peace Prize, and some people say $100 million, all came from that. There is no doubt Roger Revelle had a major impact on Vice President Gore's life. But there's a twist. In 1988, Roger Revelle was having second thoughts about whether carbon dioxide was a significant greenhouse gas. He wrote letters to two congressmen about it. And in 1991, he co-authored a report for the new science magazine Cosmos in which he expressed his strong doubts about global warming and urged more research before any remedial action was taken. At that point, Mr. Gore pronounced Ravel senile and refused to debate global warming. He continues to refuse to debate. Many offers of thousands of dollars have been made for debate. He refuses. Today, Gore sequestered the media at this event and he set forth rules, no questions, no interviews. I have learned that in 1991, Roger Revelle made what was his final speech at the high-powered, very private summer enclave of powerful men and politicians at the Bohemian Grove in Northern California. There he apologized for his research, for sending so many people in the wrong direction on global warming, and he worried about the political fallout from the UNIPCC and Al Gore. A man named Don Michael Schmedman, who lives in the San Francisco area, was there that day and he remembers the Ravel speech very well. He has told me about it in some detail. So think of the irony. Today, Al Gore received the first Roger Ravel Award, honoring the man who sent him on his global warming campaign. But Ravel had realized that it was a false alarm and that the science was flawed before he died. Ravel died of a heart attack in 1991. It would be interesting to know that if he had lived would he be approving of the award that was given tonight? Or perhaps would he be joining me at the International Conference of Global Warming Skeptics in New York next week? If you want to read the article on global warming that I have written, you can go to KUSI.com, click on Coleman's Corner. Paul, John, this is really Coleman. interesting. We haven't heard this information at all before. Well, I've done a lot of digging over the last year to uh, find all of this. And it really fascinated me when I stumbled across the Bohemian Grove speech. It's not documented anywhere. 
This is uh, the first time your orbits have crossed, you and Al Gore. They've, you're both in the same city for 24 hours, and we couldn't get the two of you to meet. Well, no, Mr. Gore, of course, is was a former vice president. He's a man who got 52 million votes for president, served very honorably as a politician. I think he would have little regard for me. But you'd like to debate him, wouldn't you? Well, sure, I'd love to debate him, but you understand, this isn't political. I'm a journalist and a meteorologist. My interest is strictly in the science. Thank you, John. So that's the report. And I'm sure you're wondering, why haven't I heard all of this before? Why isn't the media full of it? Why do I keep hearing about global warming and its threat to our civilization? Well, it's $4.7 billion a year of our tax money, and that's the power of money. Now, everything I've had in this report is posted, including the complete interview with uh, Dr. Singer. You only saw part of that interview. That complete interview and a lot of other material is posted on my Coleman's Corner website at KUSI.com, Coleman's Corner. Now, uh, I would be delighted to have you look there. I'm also a, a regular reader of a site called What's Up With That, where my friend uh, Anthony Watts hosts any number of skeptical papers on global warming. The research flows there on a daily basis. Uh, now, what's going to defeat this global warming scare? I don't think we <laughs> it's like a, It's like David and Goliath. I don't think we can defeat $4.7 billion, the Democrat Party, the United Nations, uh, and uh, the Sierra Club and the Wildlife Federation and all of them. Uh, they just claim that we're deniers and uh, old goats. <laughs> and they, they think we're bought and paid for by the, by the, the uh, big oil companies, which we are not. Uh, don't have anything to do with them. But uh, I don't think we can defeat them. You know what's going to defeat them? Time. A few more bitterly cold winters a turn toward a colder climate when the global warming fails to materialize in time people will begin to believe and i have noted that recent a recent gallup poll shows that more and more people are saying global warming that's not the big deal uh, we got a lot of big deals going on you know employment uh, uh, jobs uh, government too big that sort of thing uh, the list of their concerns is very interesting those are on it but global warming's down toward the bottom of the list. Thank you for watching this presentation. I'm John Coleman, and I'm always available. You can contact me by texting, by emailing to jcoleman at, at kusi.com. Thank you, and goodbye.